Welcome to episode five of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shroud. Thanks to our top Patreon subscriber, Darren Monk. In fact, I can thank him personally because he's right in the Zoom room with me and all the other Patreons. It's too long a list to read right now, but I'll probably read it again in the next episode. But anyway, if you want to join that group of supporters, you can sign up at patreon.com slash recreational thinking. Hi, this is Future Yogesh, making my earliest ever appearance, I think. Just wanted to note that this is an episode dedicated to Major League Baseball. Our guests today are Randall Eng, Doug Berend, and Darren Monk. Remember that order, it's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout this episode and throughout this game. So if we could start going in that order, if each of you could say where you're Zooming from in approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Randall. Hi, my name is Randall. I am Zooming from New York, which is where I'm from. I am a composer. All right, and Doug? Hey, Doug Barrand here. I'm in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I profess to be a college professor. All right, and Darren? Yeah, my name's Darren Monk. I'm Zooming from Concord, California, where I'm a web developer. Yeah, Darren was one of our guests in that kind of first stretch of episodes way back when I was, mm -hmm. had not yet, uh, when I was still uh, feeling my way through how to do this, hadn't quite reached the comfort level I'm at now. So it's good to see him back. Randall's also a former contestant, and Doug is all new. So this game is in four rounds, one individual and three specialists. The first I'll call the three R's round. It'll let me reduce, reuse, and recycle some prior material. So these first nine questions will serve mostly as a warm-up, but they'll also be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if we need it. It's only been needed once before, but nice to give it some stakes. So for this round okay. only... Yeah. <laughs> You'll uh, answer as individuals. If the first person the question is direct, that misses. It'll go to the second, then the third at the first two miss. So the further back you are, the less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and some potential answers can be taken off the table for you. And we'll rotate to each of you will answer three times in first position, three in second, three in third. And then the rules will change and I will explain that when it happens. We're also playing under the quote unquote Jimmy Lee rule, where basically I ask you to not pass on any questions to give an answer unless you give a reason that you want to pass just to show that you've put some thought into it. And just a general reminder, the content of the podcast is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share whatever interesting connections or thoughts come to you, but you don't need to talk just for the sake of talking. We don't need filler. And I will copy and paste the question text into the chat so you'll have a chance to look at it. You can also use blank paper and writing implement if you need to. Might be a few questions where it would be helpful. Ooh. Yeah, so and that's the exception to the sort of no external aid policy. I'm going to go run and get my external aid here real quick. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah. I mean, there's not going to be like any math or anything like that, but it's uh, often helpful to, you know, have something to sort of externally brainstorm with. All right. External aid required. <laughs> acquired. All right. So the first question, we'll start with Randall in first position. So as I said, this round does allow me to recycle past materials. So I'm going to recycle something from way back in the second released episode of this podcast. So as I, I noted then, Adrian Shelley created what surname of Jenna's love interest in the movie and subsequent stage musical Waitress by mashing together the surnames of three members of the New York Yankees. Although all three of these men played their entire Major League Baseball careers with the Yankees, the only season in which they were all on the roster together was 1995. Okay, 1995, they played all of their careers with the Yankees. So I got, let's see, the people that immediately come to mind, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, uh, Mariana Rivera, who else is only with the Yankees? Those seem like the most plausible three. Now I have to figure out how to jumble these together to make a name. Let's see. Uh, G... Giveda, Gisara, Ho, they, her, 
Hotera. That sounds like the most like a name so far. Hotera, Resater, or it could just be the first syllable. Regipo, Pojira. This is absurd. <laughs> I'm gonna say I think Hotera sounds like the 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 first name is Jenna. No, her love interest. Oh, I actually know who this character is because I have taught this duet that they sing, but of course I have no idea what the actual name is. But Potera sounds like it could be a name, so I'm going to say that. Potera. Okay, yeah. So Randall did figure out, but I should probably make explicit. Yeah, I, I realize I wrote mashing together the surnames. I meant, you know, mashing together parts of the surnames. Which, you know, <laughs> Randall Randall figured out, but it's good to make it explicit. So yeah, that was a good guess, a good good process, but you didn't end up in the right place. So I will pass this to Doug. Well, you got a few of the names. Another couple names I uh, were thinking of. Though, again, I'm not sure whether either of them played their entire career with the Yankees would be Bernie Williams. I don't think Ron Guidry is is the right, quite the right time here. So I'm going to say uh, I'm going to maybe use Williams here and try to do a mashup with Will, Will Vetta. Will Vetta? All right. Will Vetta. All right. Good guess, but not correct. So, Darren? Yeah. I mean, you guys, Williams was the fourth one I had, too. But I don't feel like that necessarily lends itself to this mashup as well. Let's try Postera. All right, you're all you're on the right area, but I think an angle that you missed was that if they all played their whole career with the Yankees, but they were only all together in '95, oh. one of them one of them had to have ended his career yeah. in '95. That's Mattingly. Yeah. So Posada and Jeter started in '95. Mattingly ended in '95. This character's name was Doctor Jim or James Pomatter. Pomatter. Posa- Posada, Mattingly, Jeter. Yeah. Yeah, still, still not probably the name you would construct, even if you spotted those three last names. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, we'll start with Doug in first position on this question. This you might recall from a, a OQL friendly I wrote. What journeyman infielder and catcher served as co-executive producer of his buddy Charlie Sheen sitcom Anger Management? This man's daughter Hannah appeared in two episodes of that series before landing a regular role as the teenage Kate on This Is Us. Let's see. Journeyman infielder and catcher. So I, I do maybe I'm thinking something about a former a former GM or a former player for the Mets and Expos. I can't remember whether this is the same thing. So I'm thinking of, and I think he's gone into television production. And I don't know if this had something to do more with It's Always Sunny or something like that. But the name that's coming to my mind here is Ruben Amaro or Ruben Amaro Jr. So I'm going to I'm going to say Ruben Amaro. Hmm. That's an interesting guess. In a little while, it'll become clear why it's an interesting guess. <laughs> but for now, I will just pass this to Darren. So there's one former catcher that I can think of that was like tangentially involved in show business. And I know he wrote like a movie review column for a while, which is kind of the only thing that I'm latching on to. And his name was Greg Zahn. That's what locking in? Yeah, that's what I'm going with. All right. Interesting, but incorrect. So pass to Randall. Yeah, I don't know this. Although I recall you answer, asking a question about Ruben Amaro on a previous <laughs> podcast. So I think that's where this is going. Um, yeah, infielder and catcher. I don't know. It seems like it's somebody of the vintage of the same age as Charlie Sheen. So that would be like, I don't know, like Jeff Blauser or something like that. That's not, he's not a catcher at all. Matt Noakes? No. 
These are all bad guesses. I'll say Mad Dogs. Okay, yeah. So this was someone who I actually knew of before he became a journeyman because my brother was a Cardinals fan. So I was familiar with the lineup of the Cardinals where this man started his career for about six seasons. Then he entered a phase where he played for like 10 different teams. I think only five or so major league players played for more different teams than he did. His name is Todd Zeal. Oh, much more prominent person than. Yeah. Yeah. He had a couple good seasons for sure. Yeah. His daughter, Hannah Zeal, was on This Is Us and playing sort of the younger version of Chrissy Metz's character. All right. So we'll start now with Darren on this question. Still sticking with pop culture. Listed on the National Film Registry in 2021, Robert Altman's 1973 and neo noir film, The Long Goodbye, ends with a twist involving Philip Marlowe's friend, Terry Lennox. What then-retired baseball pitcher played Terry Lennox? This man later unretired for a stint with the Portland Mavericks, during which he took time off to star in a CBS sitcom, and, as I discussed in episode 10, helped Rob Nelson and future Oscar-nominated film director Todd Field develop Big League Chew. So, I mean, I know one acting member of the Portland Mavericks, but I'm guessing this is not going to be that easy, but... Yeah, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get away from the low hanging fruit. So I'm gonna say Kurt Russell. Yeah, I think the Mavericks were what owned or managed or something by Bing Russell, his father. Yeah, yeah so I see what what led you there, but it's yeah, not correct. He was a yeah, Kurt Russell was a child star. Yeah, he was like in a movie with Elvis when he was a kid, and then he later played Elvis in the 70s. He had a very long career, but he's not the correct answer to this question. So pass to Randall. Yeah, I've seen The Long Goodbye, but it was a long time ago. This, I'm pretty sure, is someone fairly prominent whose name I'm going to slap my head about when I hear it. And I feel like I've heard some of these other bits of information before, but I just can't place who this is. Maybe Jim Belton? That sounds not right, but someone of that vintage. So a Jim Belton-like person (laughs) is my answer. That's not really an answer. A Jim Belton-like person named Jim Belton. Yeah, so... There's a story that when when Mel Brooks was looking for someone to record the theme song for Blazing Saddles, they put out a call looking for a Frankie Lane type, only for that to be responded to by Frankie Lane himself, who they hadn't realized was still active. Yes. So I, I left out of this question the name of the CBS sitcom that he took time off to star in. It was called Ball Four. Oh. It, it was based on the book by Jim Bowden, Bowton, however he said, and he was in fact playing himself. Oh, yes, he is the correct answer to this question. Very good. Yeah, then retired. I was thinking Bouton did come, but you said then retired. I think Bouton did come back and play, right? Unretired at some point later? Yeah, that's what it's. It's unretired for this. He, well, so he first unretired to play for the Mavericks, and then he, right. Ted Turner signed him to the Braves. That's and he, he eventually did make a, a major league appearance in, in 78 with the Braves. Mm-hmm. Not a very substantial comeback, but still quite impressive considering all things considered. Yeah, so that is uh, first correct answer of the game for Randall. And we have Randall in first position on this question. In 1972, the National Stadium of Nicaragua was named for Anastasio Somoza Garcia. Following the fall of the Somoza dynasty, that stadium was renamed in 1979 for the man who had assassinated Somoza, Rigoberto Lopez Perez. Then, in 1998, it was renamed yet again for what current namesake of the stadium? Okay, 1972, Nicaragua, Garcia, Somoza... Oh, all right. I feel like this trail of names is supposed to lead me somewhere where, like my first guess when I heard 72 and something to do with Central America was Roberto Clemente. And all these other names are pulling me off of that. But 
not in a direction that I um, that is leading me anywhere. So I think I'm going to stick with my original impulse, which is Roberto Clemente. Yeah, that's generally been the the first guess that happens when I ask this question. Certainly a very attractive red herring, but unfortunately it's not correct. So I will pass to Doug. All right, so I'm torn here between following the the political trail and then, or or maybe following a baseball trail. And unfortunately, both of those, I think, are leading me to dead ends because I'm not sure, you know, after after the Samosa assassination, I haven't really followed Nicaraguan politics. And I'm also trying to think of Nicaraguan, Nicaraguan baseball player. And I can think of somebody from just about everywhere else in, in Central America. I'm trying to think of a, of a Nicaraguan baseball player in 1998, but I... Can't so I'm going to think of another a, a, a prominent Latin player of the time who may be recently retired then and not coming up with anything but uh, Martinez Pedro Martinez probably too early for that. So what are you locking in Pedro Martinez? Pedro Martinez. All right, yeah, just a general kind of thing for the entire episode since this is a base. Oh right, I, I should have mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> At the beginning, I completely skipped over that part in my intro. This is a Major League Baseball, basically a mostly modern era Major League Baseball, but overall baseball themed episode following along from like the two soccer themed ones and the DC comics and the movie one and music one. It's another topic specific episode. I might have to just re-record part of the intro and say that. But anyway, yeah, so all of the answers will have something to do with baseball. Even if the question itself didn't seem to point you toward baseball, okay. um, yeah, the answers for all of these questions will in some way involve baseball. But yeah, Pedro Martinez, good guess, but not correct. So pass to Darren. So I think, well, <laughs> there's something about being on this podcast that makes you start questioning everything that you thought you knew fairly well. And so I feel like maybe I'm making this up, but I think the most prominent Nicaraguan baseball player I can think of is named Martinez, but it's Dennis Martinez. Oh my so that's gosh. what I'm locking in. Yeah. Yeah, so Roberto Clemente was was from Puerto Rico. He's associated with Nicaragua because he was on his way there in the wake of the 1972 earthquake when his uh, when he when he had his fatal accident. But yeah, uh, the, in terms of who actually was from Nicaragua, probably the most prominent Major League Baseball player. And again, you know, Doug, you kind of broke the first commandment of quizzing. Yeah. <laughs> not give more information than required. Uh, <laughs> you, if you just stopped at Martinez, you would have had it. Oh my God. Dennis Martinez, El Presidente. Yep. Noted. <laughs> All right. Doug, now in first position on this. So when I was a kid, I had a book that described each World Series up to 1963, which was presumably the year before the book was published, through the lens of a single player who gave a standout performance during that series. So what surname is shared by the Cardinal, considered the hero of the 1931 World Series, and the Yankee, considered the hero of the 1953 World Series? So 1931 Cardinals and 1953 Yankees. Well, let's see. So 31 Cardinals, beginning of sort of the Gas House Gang era. Yeah, I can think of Medwick and Frisch and Dean as good players. Then 53. Three is just the beginning of the mantle, Barra years. So I'm thinking might be a some a, a role player. No, that had an important role in the 53 World Series. I'm not as familiar with the 31 series as I should be with the 53 series. Trying to go through my the lineup in my head. Don't think Rizzuto has been used a couple of times. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not 
getting far with the names I've gotten. I think it's too early for this player, but I know through some of the 50s and early 60s, Bobby Richardson played second base. So I'm going to say Richardson. Interesting. Yeah, I think his distinction was the only World Series MVP on the losing team. Yeah, a little later, yeah. Yeah, that was in 60. So yeah, a little later. So good guess, but not correct. Pass to Darren. Yeah, I mean, I had roughly the same thoughts about yeah, I, I can put players into those general blobs of like 30s Cardinals and 50s Yankees, but in terms of the big names, I'm not seeing any overlap. So then it's kind of pick somebody from one of the teams that has like a common-ish last name. I'm going to go with Dean. Yeah, Dean, is, I think I said in the unreleased pilot, maybe at some other point too, was kind of the hero of the 34 World Series. Yeah. So again, good guess, but not correct. Pass to Randall. Yeah. All the, all the names that have been said so far feel like reasonable guesses that don't seem to have an equivalent in the other team. So I think it is somebody with a fairly common name. I mean, the, the name that I know is common to Yankees and to Cardinals is Boyer, but that's the wrong era for the Cardinals, unless there's some other Boyer. So I'm going to go with like another commonish name, I guess, just Gordon. I don't think Joe Gordon is right for this era either, but... It's better than saying Rizzuto, I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I just remembered, actually, after Darren said that the story, again, I think I told in the unreleased pilot that during the 34 World Series when uh, Dizzy Dean was injured in, in the field, the headline the next day said, x-rays of Dean's head show nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But yeah, 31, no, it was a different, uh, it was uh, a rookie that year, the wild horse of the Osage, Pepper Martin. Oh, Billy uh, Martin, yeah. Yeah. For the Yankees, their uh, future on again, off again, on again, off again manager, Billy Martin. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, Yeah. great question. Great question. All right. It's Darren now. This is now going to be a callback to something we've already been talking about. Ruben Amaro Jr. portrayed which real-life figure on two episodes of the 80s-set ABC sitcom The Goldbergs? Oh, boy. So we're looking for presumably an 80s baseball player, I would have to guess. It would help if I had ever seen The Goldbergs so I would know where it's set because I feel like that might be somewhat important. I mean, uh, if, you, if you know about Ruben Amaro Jr., you can probably make an inference about where it's set. Okay, fair. So then... Who would be a fitting person? I mean, yeah, it's not going to be Mike Schmidt. Man. Yeah, I'd, man, I do not even have a good guess for this. Ruben Amaro Sr. I saw uh, both Doug and Randall kind of smile at that. Yeah. So Ruben Amaro Jr. is portrayed as basically like a classmate of the main character. He's played by Nicky Guardado, whose father, everyday Eddie Guardado, was a pitcher, I think, for the Twins. Twins, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And he's always called Ruben Amaro Jr. by the full name to draw attention to what they're doing. But a couple times they showed his father, Ruben Amaro Sr., and he was played in a cameo by the real Ruben Amaro Jr. Yeah. Following in the footsteps of everyone from Spike Milligan to O'Shea Jackson Jr., he played his his own father, Ruben Amaro Sr. Yeah. Well done. Yay for a lack of other plausible guesses. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this next question will start with Randall. This is a long and very whimsically written question, so you'll have to parse what exactly is being asked for here. Let's have a themed movie night, you say to your partner. First, we'll watch an Oscar-nominated 1997 Brazilian political thriller based on the real-life 1969 kidnapping of U.S. Ambassador Charles Burke Elbrick, who is portrayed in the film by Alan Arkin. Then... 
Well, I definitely want to finish with Mel Stewart's Oscar-nominated 1964 documentary chronicling the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But what should we view in between? I know, she replies. We'll watch a 2010 ESPN 30 for 30 documentary about how the Boston Red Sox came back from being down three games to zero in the 2004 ALCS to capture the pennant. Perfect, you say, secure in the knowledge that you chose the right partner. What is the title of the documentary she recommended? Oh, boy. Okay. This looks to me like a before and after where I'm supposed to find the uh, before, middle, and after where I'm supposed to find the middle. Unfortunately, I have no idea what any of these movies are. 97 Brazil. So it's like whatever this Brazilian thriller ends with will be the first word of the documentary. And then whatever the Mel Stewart documentary begins with will be the last word of this documentary. So Brazilian political thriller. Yeah, I should know. This seems like a movie that was prominent. Alan Arkin's in it, but somehow it passed me by. Mel Stewart is, Mel Stewart, is that the guy that did Willy Wonka? I think it is, yes. That's crazy. <laughs> but uh, he's got a documentary about the JFK assassination. Okay, well, let's see. Jack, Texas, I mean, 2004 ALCS, that's the Yankees, isn't it? Yeah, let's see. What could this be? Oh, my God. I feel like I'm in a Jimmy Lee position here. I'm grasping at straws here. Back to the back from, back from, how about back from the motorcade? That's not a good guess. How about, uh, or how about like left for dead? Let's go for that. Okay. I see the logic behind that, but it's not correct. So I'll pass to Doug. Yeah. Randall really didn't help me anywhere here. Well done. Yes, I don't know. I mean, both of these movies sound very familiar to me, but I don't think I know the names of either of them. So I'm not sure whether it's the before and after or whether somehow this title fits in. Well, it's not going to be something like the grassy knoll or anything like that. I'm just I, what's the name of this? So they came back from three to one. It was definitely against the Yankees. The yeah, I, I'm just going to have to throw something out here. Um, just trying to remember. Beantown Surprise. I I, I just don't know. <laughs> At least you took a guess, uh, but uh, I'll pass to Darren now. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of the before, middle, and after, but I'm in mm-hmm. the same boat where I don't have anything for either of these movies, so that's not going to get me anywhere. So I'm going to hope that maybe the JFK movie, since he was assassinated in November, like... Maybe the Brazilian movie is something about September, and then the the documentary would have something. I mean, obviously the games were probably played in October, so let's try Red October. Yeah, so I think in terms of reasoning, Darren got closer. This isn't so much a before, middle, and after as kind of a abbreviated COQL or only connect type sequence, although mm-hmm. only with three elements rather than four. The Brazilian movie was called Four Days in September. The documentary is called Four Days in November. And the JFK documentary is called Four Days in November. And the baseball is called Four Days in October. Very good. All right, Doug in first position on this. Which two players, easily the keystone combo for whom I have the most personal affection, were present when Fulton County Stadium caught fire on July 20th, 1993, and posed for a famous selfie in front of the flames? I don't know if you define selfie as you have to take it yourself, then it's not a selfie, but sure. All right, Fulton, the keystone combo for whom Yogesh has the most personal affection. We're present. So it's a braze, although I know you were at least raised in Illinois, but that part of Illinois where you could be either a Cardinal or a Cub or I suppose White Sox 
devotee. I hope it's not the Braves because who likes the Braves? Excuse me if, if anybody here likes the Braves. So early 90s, Cubs would be, I think maybe, I can think of maybe somebody who played both shortstop and second base for them at the time. The White Sox, not so much. Cardinals, who was doing oh well? Obviously, one one player obviously is Ozzy Smith. Who was his partner there? So I'm not sure whether these are exactly the right time, but let me let me go with two Cubs names and say Dunstan and Sandberg on this. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'll come back to some of what you said in a, <laughs> in a little bit, but I'll just pass this to Darren. Yeah, so I happen to know that you guys are the Braves fan. So oh, okay. that's helpful here. <laughs> um, right. yeah. So there's there's some inter like have you guys noticed that too when Darren talks there's some like interference yeah oh do you want to take a I mean is it really bad should I it just it goes in and out when it comes in it does kind of make you difficult to listen to but then after a few seconds it goes away and then it's fine so I hmm. I can't really say what's causing it I mean do you want me to try playing with some of my audio settings or I mean do you want to power uh, through and do it at a break or sure yeah just just keep going okay so I think I, I'm not even positive about Braves players at this time frame in terms of what positions they played. But the two guys that I can think of that, at least in my brain, I associate as middle infielders are Jeff Blauser and Mark Lemke. So I'm going to go with them. Yeah. So when my uh, my father came to this country, he was a student at Georgia Tech, and he always had a affection for Atlanta. And he started in the 90s when CBS was playing Brave games all over the country. He started following that, and I followed his lead. So yeah, even though where I grew up, certainly the White Sox, the Cardinals, and the Cubs were the most popular teams, I was always a Braves fan. And yeah, that game, July 20th, I remember it as the, the debut of Fred McGriff with the Braves, which he hit a, a home run to tie the score against the Cardinals, and then they went on to win the game. Game, which was especially nice for me because the Cardinals were my brother's favorite team. It was nice to see the Braves defeat them. But yeah, the keystone combo for the Braves then was Lemke and Blauser. Yeah. And I do now remember, I think, you rooting hard for the Braves in their most recent World Series. Yeah, I wrote a one yes for, for Learned League. Oh, that's right. That's right. You did, you did that. Yeah. I could have figured that out, but well done. All right. And now we're on Darren in first position on... The final question of the round. Reportedly recruited out of high school by both Notre Dame's football program and the John Wooden-helmed UCLA basketball program, what versatile athlete and clean-cut Mormon instead opted to sign with the Chicago Cubs, winning Rookie of the Year honors and a gold glove in 1962, before tragically dying in a 1964 plane crash? Wow, this is a, a very interesting-sounding person that I have no idea who they are. The most prominent Mormon baseball player I can think of off the top of my head is like Dale Murphy. And that's way later than that. So man, dying in a plane crash, you would think that that would be somebody pretty famous. Mormon in basketball for John Wooden. Yeah. I, I have nothing good to go on here, even though this seems like somebody I should absolutely know. So I'm just going to go with Smith. All right. Good strategy, but not correct. So Pastor Randall. Yeah. I also have nothing on this. Yeah, it seems like I can't even figure out what position or general position this person is. Recruited for both football and basketball, so probably someone fairly large. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can, I have nothing here. So based on it not being Smith, I will try for Johnson. Fair enough. Again, a good strategic move, but not the correct answer. So, Doug? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised, sort of surprised that this does not ring a bell here. This is a little bit closer to my my ear. My first 
it was my first major league game attended in 66 so but again that means that this all would have happened before i was really aware of of, of much of anything else but i'm surprised i haven't I, I don't know this rookie of the year 62 trying to go through a mental list in my head and i don't see the answer for some reason the name glenn is is in my is in my head so i'm going to say glenn as the last name Okay. Yeah. This, this is someone who, yeah, very tragic story. He actually was piloting the plane he crashed in. He was, he was with a friend. He was trying to get back to Utah in a hurry and he was overconfident about his ability to navigate in poor weather. And yeah, a great deal of potentials that never, never came to be. His name was Ken Hubbs. Oh yeah. I've heard of that. Yeah. Kids, if you're a baseball player, do not fly your own plane. It <laughs> does not go well usually. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, so we end that round, I believe, Darren 0.3, Randall 0.1, Doug 0.0. But of course, those scores will quickly be washed away by all the higher value questions that are going to be coming. So we're now going to proceed into the not all that hard round. So in this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to the categories you selected. Standard caveat, that's not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of the category. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. The more specific you went with the categories, the more likely they are to be obliquely related. And to keep everyone on their toes, I won't reveal the categories until they become evident. But before you can answer, your opponents or your fellow contestants will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your fellow contestants miss. If I ever throw it to you without telling you whether they got it right or not, just assume. Well, if you know for a fact that they got it right, you can just confirm, but otherwise assume that they didn't because you're not going to get any points by copying their answer. There are also going to be some bonus questions that may occur. These are extra questions for people who are stolen from. They go with some, but not all questions, and they're unevenly and quasi-randomly sprinkled throughout the game. They will relate to the question. They won't necessarily be in the same category or be at the same level of difficulty. So this first set of questions are not all that hard. They'll be worth two points as a seal, one as a specialist. Bonuses are always worth half as many points as a seal, so one in this round. And now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers, even if only one knew the answer. So as with all games, there's an element of luck in there. It's not intended to be a purely meritocratic test of your quizzing ability. It's just a game. If everyone's ready, we'll start with Doug and Darren to try and steal from Randall. All right. William Bendix played an ump-hating ex-baseball player forced by circumstance to become an umpire himself in the 1950 Frank Tashlin scripted comedy Kill the Umpire. Just two years earlier, he played Babe Ruth in the Babe Ruth story. However, although he was active at the time the Pride of the Yankees was made, indeed he earned an Oscar nomination for Wake Island, which competed against Pride of the Yankees for the Best Picture Oscar, he was not cast as the Babe in that 1942 biopic. So who did play Babe Ruth in the Pride of the Yankees? It's a good question. Do we know anybody who's in the Pride of the Yankees? Well, I know I know who played Lou Gehrig in, in the Pride of the Yankees. That was... Gary Cooper. Okay, that's the one name I had for Pride of the Yankees. So yeah, I'm just trying to think. So are, are we thinking that somebody was typecast like him, kind of big and burly? So somebody in the I'm not sure when did that movie come out? Late 30s, early 40s. It's in the question. Oh, I'm sorry, in the 42. Okay, yeah. but no, it was not cast as the Babe in that 1942. But Pride of the Yankees was a little bit. Oh no, I got it. Got it. It is 42. Trying to think of actors of, of that era. I mean, Mickey Rooney's too small, a kind of burly. Yeah, it also has to be somebody that wasn't away fighting in the war, too. That's true. So older, we would want to assume. Or somehow incapacitated or, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. I've, I've got a crazy hair of maybe Edward G. Robinson. 
that he was older kind of fits the body type at least as as far as i'm i'm remembering it yeah i mean i feel like that would be a I feel like this is going to be somebody less well known than that, but I okay. certainly don't have anything better, so I'm I'm fine going with that. Yeah, unless we can think of anything better. I think it's the second time I've come up with a Robinson last name here. So, <laughs> so. you want to just try try Robinson? Sure, just start. yeah, Robinson. All right, we're trying uh, Robinson. That's a very interesting mental image to think of. Yeah, <laughs> Robinson. Yeah, <laughs> Randall Randall's turned around. <laughs> yeah, so the people on this podcast who don't have a poker face can sometimes do what Randall did. Just turn the, if they have a swivel chair, they can just turn all the way around. I think he was safe on that one because I doubt we got very close. <laughs> all right, go ahead, Randall. Well, after you figured out the Ruben Amaro question, Darren, I was thinking, because I'm not sure about this, but I am like, you know, 30, 30%. I have a reasonable guess at this, and I feel like you might have found your way to another plausible answer for this, because I think Babe Ruth played himself in this movie. Oh uh, so I'm going to say Babe Ruth. Yeah, it's Babe Ruth. Of course. <laughs> of course it's Babe Ruth. <laughs> All right. And now so. that we're on to that, it'll never be useful again. all right randall and darren now to try and steal from doug so when the quote-unquote miracle mets won the 1969 world series what pitcher earned a save in game three of that series it turned out to be the only world series appearance of his very long career it's nolan ryan i'm not sure yeah i think that's probably i mean the time frame is right and i don't remember him ever making the world series you know he was always on some fairly mediocre teams yeah, yeah. I mean, Jerry Kuzman's a possibility here as well, but Brian, I feel like, is known for like playing very little for the Mets before right. he traded, and but did one thing, which I think is it. This is the one thing he did. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm happy with that. All right, should we go with that, Nolan Ryan? Yeah, yeah. So when I said very long career, it's really the longest career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's Nolan Ryan. It is indeed. I think I think he also had a big long appearance in the in the NLCS that year. He was just so unpredictably wild at that time. Yeah. All right, Doug and Randall now to try and steal from Darren. For about half a century from the creation of the American League until circa 1953, there were five cities that had both a National League Major League Baseball franchise and an American League Major League Baseball franchise. Name all five. Oh, gosh. Okay. The pen and paper may come in handy here. And this is not necessarily at the same time, right? I mean, well, those leagues were fairly stable in the pre-expansion era. Okay. I'm working with Doug on this, right? Yeah. 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 I got two so far, but I'll keep working. Yeah. Obviously, New York, right? Yes. They had both a National League franchise and an American League franchise. Yeah. New York and the Dodgers and the Yankees. Right. I got St. Louis. Yep. St. Louis Um, with the Browns and the Cards. And then Philadelphia. Yeah, right. A's and and Phillies, right? Yeah. So what else? Oh, Chicago. Chicago White Sox and Cubs. So we're missing one. Oh, the last one's going to be uh, Boston, right? The Braves and the Red Sox. Fifty three is. That's about when they moved. Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee, I think, at that point in time. Or the St. Louis Browns moved to Baltimore. Those are all happening right about right about then. Those all sound good to me. Let's just take a sec to make sure we're not missing something else. Yeah, I like it. We've got Browns and Cardinals for St. Louis, Yankees, Dodgers and Giants for New York, Phillies and Athletics for Philly, Cubs and White Sox for Chicago, and Red Sox and Braves for for Boston. Uh Uh-huh. I feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Baltimore had like some early team someplace. Yeah, they did. And then eventually the Browns, I think, became the Orioles. But I don't think they may have had a National League team before before this. Or the Orioles were Orioles were a team and then they weren't a team and then they came back when the Browns moved there or something, something like that. Yeah, I, think I don't they think they ever had a National League team. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they I think the original Orioles maybe turned into the Yankees. Right. That I've heard, have heard that. Yeah. So but then that's just AL. So that's not that's not right though. Right. And Washington didn't have anything with the Senators, right? No. For all those years. I don't think so. Pittsburgh was just the Pirates. At least they didn't have they had a great Negro League team, but they didn't have mm-hmm. an American League team. Um yeah. We don't have to worry about teams west of St. Louis then. <laughs> so yeah, I think these five seem good. All right, let's lock so it in. So what are your answers? St. Louis, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, and Boston. Yeah. Yeah, I think for for like that first half cent the, the first half century of the modern era, basically there were 16 teams that were just stable. They didn't change their name or move in. Well, they changed their names a bit. Yeah. Boston was like the bean eaters and then the bees. And Cleveland went through multiple names. They were the Naps for a while. But I mean, their locations were the same. So when the AL was started, yeah, they basically put five teams in the same cities as NL teams and three others, one in Cleveland, one in Detroit. Don't remember the third one off on the top of my head. But yeah, those five are correct. Now I have to think of what that last team is. <laughs> All right. Um, Washington. Okay. No, Washington. Was yeah, yes. Yeah, Washington, D.C. Yeah, Washington. Washington. Yeah. Washington Senators. Yeah. yeah. The first Washington Senators. Yeah. Okay. Doug and Darren now to try and steal from Randall. The 1974 Oakland Athletics had on their roster a man named Herb Washington, who had zero professional baseball experience under his belt when he was signed to a contract. What was his primary function on the team? He was like a designated pinch runner. Yeah. We're on the Charlie Finney's, Finley's brilliant ideas. Yeah, I I agree. He was a designated runner, stolen base thief. I don't know. I can't remember what he was. Was he just a sprinter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, I think his only appearances came like he never, he may have had like one at bat or something, but he just always got put in when somebody walked, basically. Yeah. I, I feel comfortable, feel comfortable with that. So should we just say you know, designated pinch runner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was often referred to as a designated runner. I think his baseball card says pinch runner. So either of those is fine. But this is, I think, the third question Darren has answered specifically about Charles Finley's experiments while (laughs) (laughs) owning the A's on this podcast. (laughs) All right. Randall and Darren now to try and steal from Doug. NCAA basketball's so-called Game of the Century took place on January 20th, 1968, between an undefeated team helmed by John Wooden, featuring center Lou Alcindor, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and an undefeated team helmed by Guy Lewis, featuring power forward Elvin Hayes. It was both the first NCAA regular season game broadcast nationwide in primetime and the first basketball game to take place in which venue? I got a guess at this, Darren. It seems unusual that he's not telling us the names of these teams. Right. Uh, so Wooden is UCLA. I think Elvin Hayes played for Houston. So the Astrodome then would be my guess for this. Yeah, that time frame's right. And obviously it's got to have a, a baseball connection. So yeah, I like that. All right, let's say that then. The Astrodome. Yeah, that's correct. Good inference. The wonder of the world. <laughs> yeah, that opened in, when did that open? 66, 64, something like that. Around then, yeah, the AstroTurf. Yeah. It could have been, you guys could have said Dodger Stadium, you know, (laughs) in January, maybe, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
But I guess technically, even though in this question I didn't say what John Wooden coached, I think I did say that in a previous question in this game. Mm-hmm. But good, uh, good college basketball knowledge. All right, Doug and Randall now to try and steal from Darren. On September 16th, 1992, who became the first position player to take the mound in the history of the New York Mets franchise? His Major League Baseball career ended with the ill-fated 1994 Braves, but his name lives on thanks to Nate Silver. Nate Silver. Okay, I'm with, this is Doug and me, right? Yes. I think so. So So I have a, I got a guess on this. Do you have anything? Yeah, I I imagine I might have a a similar guess. Why don't you go ahead and and say what you're thinking? Bobby Benilla is what's coming to mind because of the contract and that he's owed lots to the Mets every year. I think of that as a thing that's like just known and not necessarily because of Nate Silver. I think he's on the team in 92. Yeah, I think he is as well. I don't think that, so my guess was different. So I don't think Benilla's career ended as soon as 94. I'm a little hesitant because of the 94 as well. So who do you, who who were you thinking? So Nate Silver, he was a baseball statistician before, before he was a, political hack uh, or political uh, statistician. Uh, Sorry. I used to like him a lot, but I'm thinking that he must have coined the term, the Mendoza line, and that this would be Mario Mendoza who played shortstop at least part of the time with the Mets. I think he played a decent part of his career with the Pirates, but he did have, I think, a short stint with the Mets. So I'm pretty sure Mendoza dates from like the Mm seventies. So because I remember when Ramiro Mendoza was on the Yankees that they'd always talk about earlier Mendozas. So mm-hmm. I feel fairly confident that Mendoza is a person that played like in the early 70s. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I have this particular Mendoza, Mario Mendoza, tagged later into the 80s and and 90s. I mean, right, right. But And so you said Bonilla. Yeah, it could be. So I don't, his name lives on thanks to Nate Silver. So did Nate Silver, you know, this it's Bobby Bonilla Day. I don't know whether that's what we're thinking. Yeah, I don't love the phrasing, the name lives on. I, I hear what you're saying about why you went to Mendoza because that yeah. phrasing makes it seem, but I, I feel, yeah. hmm, maybe it's someone we're not thinking of. You know, I'm, I, feel, I feel relatively confident about Mendoza, this particular Mendoza, Mario Mendoza, having played in this time. I was surprised to see Nate Silver, though, because maybe I, maybe I thought that name was coined by somebody like Bill James instead, right? The average at which you no longer, even if you're the best fielding you know, shortstop yeah. ever, you're not going to be able to make it make a contribution to, to the team, right? Because of all that. But I don't know whether Silver I, I... Was, was, was doing his thing back that early. I mean, as we're talking this out, I feel like Mendoza line being 200 batting average, that's like something that sabermetric people don't care about at all, your batting average. So that's why I feel like the Mendoza line was a thing from earlier. There's also a band, an indie band in New York, right? It's called the Mendoza line, but they were like late 90s, early 2000s too. So do you want to go with Bonilla? I'm I'm, I'm feeling, I'm leaning towards Mendoza. You're leaning towards Bonilla here. I'm, I'm okay with either really. I'm I'm happy with either one too. I mean, I'm not. I don't feel like that confident that Benio is right, but I feel more that Mendoza is not correct. We're gonna have to do the the Cosmic coin here because I've got the same. I've got the exact same thing, but, oh, but right. in the, in, in the yeah. other direction. And it could be it could be something yet altogether yeah, that, that, we are, that, that we are that we are missing. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was a Mets, you know. So so I'm I'm old enough, 
yeah, I, I was old enough to, you know, been with the Mets, you know, watch the Mets in, in 69, 73 during the Seaver glory years, all in and the Mets, one of the Mets glory years. And I'm, I just don't, did he say with the Mets franchise? Yeah. And he, then Mario Mendoza, this particular Mendoza, I can't say that no Mendoza, but Mario Mendoza did not play with the Mets in the seventies. So again, that's why I'm leaning that way. Right. And you're sure he did play with the Mets at some point? No, uh, but I'm not. I, I remember him more with the, the Pirates, but he may. The Mets have a, do have a history of, of, of oh, you know. Um, like I, I also, thinking... the, I, I, now I'm thinking of something completely different. Oh. There is a, a phrase called the ridiculous Jose Okendo. Have you heard this phrase? I have not. I know so... who Okendo is, though. Right. Again, a, 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 an excellent fielding shortstop. He played briefly for, for the Mets, though. I think he, Okendo played mo more of his times with the Cardinals. I'm sorry. Now I'm, now I'm just confusing myself <laughs> in addition to, to everything else here. Choose I, a name, Randall. I'm, I'm okay. I, 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 if you feel anyway. like Okendo is something, I actually have some that rings a bell for me in terms of him pitching. So if that's a phrase that you've heard that sounds like a reasonable guess to me. All right. All right. Let's try Okendo. You're locking in Okendo? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you think, Darren? So I, I was a little scared there when Doug started, just came out of nowhere with like, I've got this other idea because the two that you guys were debating between I knew were wrong. And then I thought he was just going to come out of nowhere and come in with the right answer. Well, which apparently uh, I didn't. <laughs> no. So Nate Silver, he started working for Baseball Prospectus. He was, you know, one of the early sabermetrics guys, at least, you know, making it more mainstream, I guess you could say. And his projection system that he developed was called Pakoda. Oh, oh God. Oh, yeah. So yeah, Pakoda. Pakoda, yeah. Yeah. Was his first name Bill Pakoda? Yeah, it was Bill Pakoda. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I so should you have did... had that one, Randall. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. If they'd had it, you would have got, uh, gotten another bo a bonus question that would have been yet another one about Chuck Finley at the A's. Do you want to hear it just for fun? Okay. Bill Pakoda is one of a handful of players to play all nine positions during his Major League Baseball career. On September 8th, 1965, as part of a stunt arranged by Charles O'Finley, which Kansas City Athletic became the first Major League Baseball player to play all nine positions in a single game? For Campanaris? Yep. All right. But that's just uh, not, not for any points. All right. Doug and Darren now to try and steal from Randall. Peyton Manning began his collegiate career in 1994 as a third-strings quarterback for the Tennessee Volunteers. Jerry Colquitt's injury in the season opener bumped him up to the second string. He then advanced to starter and never relinquished that position after who was taken down by injury in the fourth game of the season. This is Ian Doug. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this is Todd Helton. Right. Yeah. So this was the year the year after Arkansas joined the, the SEC. So, yeah. So slugging, slugging volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I agree. All right. So unsurprisingly, that's correct. And I do have a bonus. This will be a real bonus for Randall. So Todd Helton switched sports and went on to win what award bestowed by the National Collegiate Baseball Writers Association that Wikipedia describes as the Heisman Trophy of college baseball. I don't know this college baseball award. Huh. Probably named after a person, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, there's something called spikes. That's a different sport. Holton spikes is a different sport, I think. Yeah, I don't know what this is. Um... The Dick Williams Award. You actually have half of it right. It's uh, the uh, Dick Hauser Award. Ah. Or sorry, the Dick Hauser Trophy. Uh. Yeah. Golden Spikes is a baseball thing, but I think yeah. it's like for amateur. Or it's like not just college specific, I think. Oh, okay. All right. So next 
question for Randall and Darren to try and steal from Doug. On June 14, 2019, Kenley Jansen, following a strategy suggested by coach Bob Guerin, became the first pitcher in documented MLB history to intentionally balk. Why did he do so? Oh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Why would you do that? Well, let's say you've got a runner on, you want to advance the runner so that, so that what? Maybe because of the shift, like you don't, you know, you have somebody on a base that's not going to really be covered, so you can't hold the runner there. Yeah, it could be. Does this date mean anything to you? Is there something happening that they were trying to avoid a batter, specific batter? Well, but still, I mean, that wouldn't help you avoid a batter. Because like, even if you advance, like you don't need to advance a runner to intentionally walk somebody behind them or something. So like... It almost, it almost has to do, it has to be something meta that's like outside of normal baseball <laughs> rules or what you would do. Like either he had an injury so he couldn't throw over to a certain base or because I don't know why you'd want, like you wouldn't want to intentionally score a runner, certainly. Mm-hmm. Was that the year that they, uh, when did they institute the limit on mound visits? Because I think the penalty for that is a balk. Oh, so like maybe they just needed another mound visit to like to give a bullpen pitcher time to warm up or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Those those are about all the ideas yeah. I have, but I can't really distill that into a a answer other than like to give somebody some more time to warm up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of those, I guess the the shift one is the one that feels like the most like possible to me. I guess it still doesn't really make sense. Right. Yeah, no, you you came up with some really reasonable, plausible options there, Darren. So I mean, they don't feel that plausible to me, but <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be something wacky. So yeah, yeah, I don't know which do you feel like is the best for you. Uh, I mean, the the delaying thing seems the most obvious to me, but then I feel like that would have happened before. If that makes mm-hmm. any sense, like I feel like it happening so recently means that it has to do with some sort of rule change. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I mean, I'm, honestly, what I'm tying it to more is the mound visit thing. Yeah, that's fine. Well, let's go with that. Okay. Yeah. So to to get an extra mound visit, we'll say. Yeah, I thought I thought there was a chance one of you might just know this, but I like that it turned into like a Tom Scott style lateral thinking puzzle. And you you had some very good reasoning, but uh, you didn't get to the correct answer. So pass to Doug. Yeah, I think there were lots of good ideas that they said. You know, I, I thought maybe, you know, I, I was also thinking maybe that they have because of hitter coming up, you balk somebody from first to second. So the first baseman does not have to hold on to the bag and you've got a powerful lefty coming up. So that could be it. The other thing I was thinking of is just sort of, you know, you balk balk somebody to let's say they're men on first and second or for, I'm sorry, first and third or just on first, you balk to second, so then you can intentionally walk intentionally walk the next batter. That doesn't make a ton of sense either, though, because right, you don't you don't walk if you just walk, you just walk that batter and the person would move to second anyhow. I'm trying 2019. That was was that the year? So it's not bonds or anything like that. So they're talking about the shift, which was close, but I'm I I thought it was maybe just so the first baseman would not have to hold on, would not have to hold the runner on at first and really basically take away, make the defense didn't have to be a shift, but make the defense more standard or for that reason. 
The only thing I can think of is that a, a big slugger is coming up and you can intentionally walk somebody, but that doesn't make any sense at all. So I'm going to say, so the first baseman doesn't hold, have to hold on to the runner at first. Maybe that's too similar to their answer, but that's what I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. Another good guess. So, you know, obviously in order to not make this kind of transparent, I had to withhold some information, but you can kind of deduce, right? Kenley Jansen is a closer, right? So you can kind of deduce this is probably happening toward the end of the game. Specifically, it was in the ninth inning with two outs. So his focus was basically, if he can retire the batter at the plate, the game would be over and it wouldn't really matter who was on base. The other piece of information that would provide a really big hint is that the base runner was on second base and by balking, he advanced him to third. So if you really want to get out a batter at the plate, why would you not want to have a base runner on second base? Oh, stealing signs. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh that's right. Was, was this against the Astros by any chance? <laughs> don't don't recall who it was against but you know i mean i think it's basically as long as you don't use electronics it's basically legal to like convey signs that you see you know and if you're on second base you have a direct view right to the catcher so yeah well at least you can see where the catcher's setting up even if you're not stealing signs you can tell them where the pitch is going mm-hmm. was it jansen was he one of the pitchers who had or was suspected of tipping off his pitches so it was it was not it was actually stealing the, the catcher signs, but not, you know, from second base, you can see his grip or something like that. I thought, thought I remember something mm. with that, but anyhow, that makes sense. Yeah. It makes complete sense. Yeah. Bob Garrett was a catcher. So yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. And now to finish. Okay. So unfortunately your uh, streak ends at seven correct answers in a row, but Doug and Randall now to finish out the round before we move on to the only somewhat hard round, Doug and Randall's Ryan Seal from Barron. Tim Hudson has the distinction of being the starting pitcher for the first two 18-inning postseason games in Major League Baseball history. In Game 2 of the 2014 NLDS, he started for the Giants against the Nationals. Prior to that, in Game 4 of the 2005 NLDS, he started for the Braves in what turned out to be the final game in their streak of qualifying for every available postseason since 1991. That 2005 game lasted for so long, in fact, that its winning pitcher of record was what man who hurled three scoreless innings in his first relief appearance since 1984. Well, um, somebody with a, a long, long, this is me and me, me and Randall. Yes. yes. So certainly this is the era of the great Braves triumvirate. 1980, oh my God, 1984 to 2005. So my, my first question for you, Doug, is like, who won this game? Uh, you know, I... Um, did the Braves win or did they lose? Let's see. So 2000, the 2005 game, let's see. So they qualified for 15 straight years from 1991 through 2004 or no, five, something like that. I think that's, so I think, and I think Yogesh said, you know, in what turned out to be the final game in their streak of qualifying for the postseason in every non-strike short season since 91. So, so no, well, the final game in their streak of qualifying. So that could be, that mean it's unclear. It sounds like that means that they did qualify. Well, qualifying for the postseason, they had already qualified for this postseason if they were in the NBA. Oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. So I'm this sorry, would, I think, lost. this means yeah. that they lost. So who did they play? 2005 NL, this is NLDS, the Vision Series. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. 2005, first three scoreless innings. So, But it's obvious somebody who was pitching in 1984, right, who would still be on the mound in 2005, right, still yeah. still pitching at that time. That's a long, long, long career of yeah. starting pitchers. So Greg Maddox comes to mind. Sure. Phil Negro comes to mind. 
That's too late for Necro, I think. All right. Maddox is the right vintage. Too late for Maddox was on. Um, he he was on some other teams at the end, right? He he was. So well, we started Cubs and Cubs and Braves. Cubs again at the end, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so. So maybe like not San him. Diego or something. Right. So it's eighty four was too early for Smoltz or Glavin. So what? What? Who was the? What was the other team? Was it two thousand and five? This was not when the my team was good. It doesn't have to be any anyone associated with the Braves at all. Right. That's right. So Tim Hudson, prior to that, he started the game of the Braves, I mean, which turned out to be their final game. Clemens. Clemens in the, it was the it? Astros. Ah. Oh no, 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 no. That doesn't make sense. Astros already in the AL at that point, aren't they? Um, two thousand and five. I don't think so. That seems like it was more. The switch was more recent than that, so it could have been the Astros. I mean, so it could have. Clemens is not a bad guess there. Two thousand and five. You want to go with? You want to go with that? I'm just trying to think. Is that better than Maddox? Maddox also seems plausible to me, but Clemens is earlier. Eighty four is maybe too early for Maddox. Clemens is eighty six is his first massive year, but he was around for a couple of years before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't Let's know. Go. Let's give it a whirl. All right, we'll try Clemens. Is that right, Darren? I don't know, but it's certainly that's that's what I would have said. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll I'll cut you off there. Yeah, I mean that was excellent reasoning. It is absolutely Roger. Good job, Randall. Yeah. All right. So I'll give here's a bonus for Darren to finish out the round. As a Brave in 2005 and a National in 2014, which first baseman managed to be on the losing side of both of those 18 inning games? Man, Brave in 2005 and a National in 2014. Boy, I I don't have a great guess here. Yeah, I'll just say Mark DeRosa. All right. His name was Adam LaRoche. Uh, yeah. All right. So we finish out the not that, uh, what is it called? The not all that hard round uh, with Randall at 9.1, Doug at 8.0, and Darren at 9.3. So extremely tightly packed, which makes sense because you all, you know, got basically all but one of the questions between you. And now we head into the only somewhat hard round, if everyone's ready to proceed, with Doug and Darren to try and steal from Randall. All right. So 1992 saw Dennis Eckersley have the best season of his career, going 7-1 and one with a 191 ERA and 51 saves, and winning both the Cy Young and the AL MVP award. In what year did Eckersley make his Major League Baseball debut? Well, oh, I know he goes back at least to the late 70s, I'm pretty sure. Right, because he came up... He, he was a starter. As a starter, right. Yes. Yeah. So, and I think he threw a no-hitter. Right, and he started with Boston? Is that who he started with? Or Cleveland? I always forget. I think Boston and then Cleveland, but it could be the other way around. Yeah, I think so. So do you think he's as far back as, as 79? Or that's... I know 79 was the first thing that popped into my head, but I don't mm -hmm. know if that's like when he threw a no-hitter or that might have been early 80s. But I, I'm almost positive he at least played in the 70s. But I don't know. He could have come up in 77 or 78 or something. I don't know. Right. So... He's famous for a few things, no hitter, all the saves, giving up home runs when he shouldn't, those sorts of things. I mean, 79 just seems a, a touch early, but he was around for a long, you were right that he was around for a long time, really before he he came into his own. I think he was a 20 game winner too in, in, in one season as a starter. I'm okay with going to 79. That would be, that means he did seven or eight years. He kind of transitioned over to being a, a closer in the late eighties. Does that sound about right? Yeah, because I mean, the, those A's teams, you know, 88, 89, 90. So 
was there three consecutive World Series. Yeah, I don't have any reason. I mean, I think you're right in the ballpark. I don't have any reason to say no, it was earlier or no, it was later. So I'm just trying to think why is there something specific to this <laughs> to this year? But I, I'm okay right. going with with 1979. If if if, if Sure. I mean, I, I've got nothing better. It's based to me. It's just guess a, a year in the late seventies. So if right. seventy nine feels good, let's do seventy nine. All right, let's let's try it. All right, good guess, good logic, but not correct, Pastor Rand. I'm trying to solve what is significant about this year. I'm not totally sure why this question is being asked, and I'm sure it's going to make sense once I see the answer. I feel like Eckersley was maybe on that seventy eight Red Sox team, so I think he goes back further. Nineteen nineteen. I mean. Like a nice 15, let's say he played 20 years, another five years at the end, like so it's like 77 or something like that is like a reasonable guess. But I feel like that's it's there's a more interesting reason that this year is important. What is this interesting reason? Maybe 75. Was that the year of the wait a minute? What's the year of the Red Sox World Series with the Alton Fisk home run? Is that 75, 73? Maybe he was in that series and he was, and that's what's important is that he was in that first series. Now I can't remember what year that was though. 76, 75. I don't know. I'm going to say, I guess I'm going to say 1975. Okay. Yeah. I think, I mean, generally I, you know, stay away from asking questions that are just name a year, but I, I just, you know, as a kind of a, as a, a behavioral scientist, you know, they're one of the things you see is kind of the curves of when people accomplish things, which, you know, creatively, yeah, tends to be mostly linked to like, you know, twenties or thirties, but there are definitely late bloomers. It's much rarer to see late bloomers in sports, which is why it's notable when it happens. I think in, in episode 21, I talked about George Blanda, who was around long enough that Lamar Hunt quipped oh he's just as good as you know his father who used to play 20 years ago george blanda <laughs> so i have always been amazed by the fact that dennis eckersley peaked 17 years after he entered the major leagues yeah 1975 with the indians very nice yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, indians, he came up with the indians uh, yeah but he was with the red sox in 78 that was when he won uh, 20 games and he was actually fourth in the voting for the cy young award that year well yeah all right so Next question is Randall and Darren to try and steal from Doug. In 1990, George Brett won his third American League batting title, giving him incidentally three batting titles across three different decades, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And Willie McGee earned the National League batting crown. I think it was his second after his MVP season. However, who actually had the highest batting average in the majors that year? Oh, well, this is me and Darren, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. So it's someone who was traded mid-year then. Yeah. Yep. Who's that? And I swear I remembered that being Willie McGee, so I have this backwards in my brain. <laughs> I just remembered that Willie McGee was associated with us, and that somebody got traded in the middle of the year, and so they didn't have enough at-bats in either league to qualify. Uh-huh. So who would have been likely candidates in 1990 for batting titles? Leo Franco? Yeah, and he did move around a fair amount. Oh. I'm thinking of some reason I have like one Samuel in my brain, but I don't think that's right. He also moved around a lot. That's plausible. I don't think of him as like a super high batting average. Right. Yeah. Who else is hitting for average at this time? I mean, it's like Magni and Boggs, but they weren't really getting traded in this time frame. Yeah. Paul Molitor. I mean, Tony Quinn wasn't getting traded. Oh, no. 
just to clarify, I guess, this is somebody that actually had enough at bats to qualify for the batting title. This isn't like some person that had one at bat and hit a thousand. Yeah, I should. I, I thought about putting a note to that effect in the question. And then I was like, I think I think it's from, you know, Gricey and Maxims. I think you can kind of deduce that, yes, this is someone who legitimately qualified that yeah. bats. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Steve Sachs. I don't know. Of all these, Franco's the one that I like the most so far. Yeah. Yeah, I don't hate it. I mean, he's more remembered now for just hanging around forever, but you know, people forget that he was actually a, a good hitter. I think he did win a batting title at some point. Um, yeah. With the Rangers or somebody. Yeah. And I mean, if we're metagaming, there's another guy that's associated with the Braves. So. What'd you yeah, say I'm about? okay with that. Yeah, the, yeah, that interference kind of took out what you said. Oh, sorry. I just said, you know, that's another guy that's kind of associated with the Braves. So for, you know, playing game theory a little bit, that's yeah. not a bad guess from that standpoint either. Right. So yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I mean, other, it's, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to land on something where we're going to be like, oh, that's definitely the answer. Yeah. So. All right. All right. Let's just go with that then. Yeah. Julio Franco. All right. Julio Franco during that time would have been playing for the Texas Rangers. Yeah, he was the American League batting champion in 91. So one year off there. Doug? Yeah, that was a really good guess. Really good discussion. I learned a few things. <laughs> I've got, you know, so I'm trying to think 1990. This was, I think that the year that was the Reds won the World Series. Trying to think of they acquired anybody mid-season or somebody who was instrumental in there, sorry, I'm writing things down here. And there are things I thought of this is also sort of right towards the end of Keith Hernandez's career. Ah. So he won a batting championship earlier, earlier in the 80s. I'm trying to think when the Mets traded him away. And another name that's come to mind is then uh, Tony Fernandez. I'm trying to think whether whether he was still with, I mean, he had great seasons in the late 80s. Now, but he was, was he still with the Blue Jays when they when they won their when they won the World Series in 92-93. I can't remember exactly what it was. So trying to think of Reds, is this it's too early for no, this is was this Barry Larkin's year? And did he get traded? I thought he was drafted straight into the Reds. So I really don't I, I'm I'm a little puzzled too here. So the best guess I have here, I think, is Keith Hernandez. So I'm gonna say Keith Hernandez and tell him to guard the line. Yeah, the anomaly here actually, I mean, it actually was caused by Willie McGee being traded in the middle of the season. So, I mean, your memory of that was right, Darren. Yeah. It was, you, you had what you had backwards was, yeah, like that wasn't the being traded wasn't the reason that this person didn't win the batting crown. It was that they didn't win because Willie McGee was traded. So, Willie McGee mm -hmm. went into uh, a slump slump uh, after being traded, which depressed his overall average, but only the part when he was in the National League counted. Right. Yeah. So overall through the season, the man with the highest average, even higher than George Brett over in the American League was Eddie Murray. Mm. Ah, he was a good hitter. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out. Turns uh, out. I think he was with the Dodgers during that time. Yeah. Dodgers. Mm, good question. All right. Doug and Randall to try and steal from Darren. The Wikipedia article on the 1993 Major League Baseball expansion has only one sentence in the subsection devoted to Miami, stating simply that a certain man, quote, pushed baseball commissioner Faye Vincent to expand to Florida. Identify that Florida man who never played pro ball himself, but whose connection to baseball is fairly obvious from his name. Hmm. Identify that Florida man who never played pro ball himself, but whose connection to baseball is fairly obvious himself. So... Well, I can, I don't know if you got anything, but I mean, who was the owner? Was, was Hyzango the owner back? Yeah, I think so. 
then, but what is what is his how how does that name make the connection to baseball is fairly obvious from his name. Huh. Could it have been the younger Steinbrenner? Um, why would they want to expand to have another team in Florida? It's simply that a certain man pushed baseball commissioner Faye Vincent to expand to Florida. I never played pro ball himself, but his connection is fairly obvious from his name. I thought it was something, but it's almost definitely wrong. But I wanted to get us to, to something yeah. that, right. I mean, I feel like, you know, the names that were coming up were like people like Kuzanga or like Peter Uberoff, um, mm -hmm. who are clearly baseball related. But the way that Yogesh is phrasing this last thing feels like it's not somebody like that, whose connection to baseball is fairly obvious from his name. So I mean, this is definitely wrong, but like mm -hmm. Don Castro came to mind as someone who <laughs> like, connections to Miami and like has a baseball thing in his life. Uh, so was there another another impresario or another some somebody named Castro you know, who could have could have been that? So, I mean, that's an interesting interesting line, but it doesn't seem like Fidel Castro would have would have had any any, um, <laughs> any sway any sway with with the commissioner of ML uh, of League Baseball. I wouldn't describe him as a Florida man either. No. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, perhaps in temperament. <laughs> Florida man. So who was the governor or or senator from Florida at that time in 1990s? Boy, this is this is right about when Clinton got elected. And I don't know who the I mean it could be Jeb Bush. Oh. Ah, I think that's the Florida man we want. That sounds like a name that is uh, connected to baseball. That's a right. Florida. Or, right. He's a Florida man as opposed to the right. George W., who's a Texas man, right? So, yeah, I mean, uh, it feels kind of early to me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how old Jeb Bush is, but like George W. was the president of the Rangers, like around this time, right? Right. So, Jeb would have, well, would have been in his 20s, maybe early 30s. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There, there are enough bills saying yes to me for this to like to go for yeah. it. Yeah, I think so. Let's, let's say Bush. And if Yogesh wants a first name, we can, we can give him one. You learned your lesson from the, the earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Fool me once. <laughs> what do you think, Darren? So, I, I mean, I definitely don't know this. So I'm kind of in the same path that they were in terms of thinking of names that are, I mean, as the question says, they're connected to baseball, but not as players. So I'm thinking of, you know, people who have stadiums named after them. So something like, you know, Ripley or something, or, you know, maybe it's even something like Rawlings or, you know, something along those lines or like Joe Robbie, because they played in Joe Robbie Stadium to start out with. But I, I don't have anything else to go on with this. I really like your guys' guess, actually. But in the interest of time, and because I don't really have anything, I will say Wrigley. So uh, Doug kind of went over it in his deliberation. Oh, yes. mm -hmm. you, you didn't really kind of drill down on what Doug asked, who, who, was, uh, who were the U.S. senators from Florida at the early 90s? Well, actually, I don't know who both of them were, but uh, <laughs> you know one apparently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, who was representing Florida in the U.S. Senate at that time? It was one Cornelius McGillicuddy the Third, better known uh, as Connie Mac. Connie Mac. Oh wow! Oh wow. uh, boy, we were all around it. Yeah. All right, Doug and Darren to try and steal from Randall. 
In 1941, Ted Williams was famously within a rounding error of batting 400 for the season, approaching the season-ending doubleheader against Connie Max A's. It's just a, well, I actually shifted the previous question to come before this one, so that's why there are two Connie Mack questions in a row. So rather than sit out the doubleheader and enter the record books with a 400 mark for the season, Williams chose to play both games, going 6 for 8 on the day, including a grounder that was controversially ruled an error rather than a hit, which lifted his average to 406, the famous number. So Mack reportedly responded to this turn of events by wistfully saying, I wish I had a Williams. I had one once, and I lost him. He was referring to which player who entered the majors with Max A's in 1908, but in 1910 was traded along with Morty Rath to the Cleveland Naps in exchange for Briss Lord. So I'm assuming he's referring Williams as like a, he's he's not saying I wish I had another player named Williams. He's saying I wish I had another player like Ted Williams. So the guy that jumps out at me for this era, although I don't know if he started with the A's, but I know Tris Speaker was a high average hitter for Cleveland in this era. Yeah, I think I'm trying to think of others. I mean, Speaker is, is the one. It's not Nap LaJoy, right? Because he's, well. Because that's in the question, too. Right, kind of. right yeah. exactly. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think that's that would be the best guess. That would be the best name that I have. I don't think trying to think other other high. Yeah, uh, there's like Rogers Hornsby, but I don't think he ever played for those teams. George right. George Sisler. Sisler. I think Sisler actually played longer with the. Oh, Sisler's a good. I think he played longer with the the Athletics. Doesn't say how he entered the majors. No, he would not have. <laughs> Didn't he have most of his career with the with the A's, or was he an Indian? I'm trying to remember. But I like I like speaker. I think the time time is right, the era is right. So let's go with that. Yeah, I'm good with that. All right, locked in speaker. All right, yeah. what do you think, Randall? I think speaker is a reasonable guess. I'm going to go with someone else who I'm not 100 sure played for Cleveland, but is a higher average person that seems like the level of mythology for why Mac would be making this kind of quote, and that's Joe Jackson. So do you remember what your category was, Randall? Um. I think no. I can give it. I think I can give it away at this point because it's not going to be any further hints. But you suggested players who were not in the Hall of Fame. Oh right, yeah, yeah. And of course, from that era, probably the biggest name player who is not and never will be most likely in the Hall of Fame, Shoeless, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Mm. Very nice. Good. Yeah, of course, not really famous for playing with Cleveland, but no. Yeah, or the A's. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Yes. Okay. This is maybe my favorite question I wrote for this episode for Randall and Darren to try and steal from Doug. The September 6, 1999 issue of Sports Illustrated featured on its cover four New York Mets with the headline, the best infield ever? One of those players was noticeably dressed differently from the others. How so? Oh, dear. Okay, so this is the infield. I think that's Robin Ventura and Edgardo Alfonso and John Olrud and who's the shortstop? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing a blank, too. Someone really, they were they were all really strong fielders. So Ray Ordonez, maybe? Oh, yeah, I think that's right. And I, for some reason, I think either they were, I remember that somebody was shirtless on this cover. But I don't remember if it was like three guys were shirtless and then only one guy was wearing a shirt or vice versa. What are these for? John Olrud seems like not the kind of person that would be shirtless. Oh, or John Olrud could have been wearing a helmet. That sounds good. Yeah. 
Yeah, Ventura. Yeah, I actually like that. Better. I like There's that some a reason lot. I'm picturing the shirtless thing, but I, I mean, that's the obvious thing that you know, old would always wear a helmet in the yeah. field. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think let's go with that. All right. Yeah. John yeah, so, Rude was wearing a helmet. So they were definitely all wearing shirts in that image. Okay. <laughs> I, I must have been picturing something else. <laughs> different a, different, a different sports <laughs> illustrated issue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm surprised it actually took you that long. Once you hit on Olerud, I thought it would fall pretty quickly. But yeah, I mean, yeah. that was his major distinction. So uh, bonus for, for Doug. The next year, Olerud went to the Mariners where according to an apocryphal, or according to a, a, a story which is a little bit too good to be true, what teammate approached him and asked about his helmet, and upon learning why he was wearing it, said, oh, I had a teammate on the Mets who also did that, only for Olaru to point out that that was him as well. <laughs> I don't have this written out. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. Uh, it's, it's, it's okay. So it's a teammate on... He met on both the Mets and the Mariners. Uh, on the both the Mets and the Mariners from '99 and then into 2000. That would be this be Carlos Baerga? Is that what you're locking in? Yeah. Uh, no. And either of you guys remember? It's yeah, Ricky. Ricky being Ricky, yeah. Oh, Ricky, of course. <laughs> Ricky Henderson, yes. Of course, it's Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I saw a little uh, video of John Oliver talking about it. He said, like, when assistant coach came up with the story, it was so good, people took it as true. Yeah. All right. Doug and Randall to try and steal from Darren. In 2013, Hunter Pence was diagnosed with Scheuermann's disease, a genetic disorder that causes kyphosis in which part of the human body? All right. Hunter Pence. So he was on the Astros and then the Giants, right? Right. Scheuermann's disease, kyphosis. I mean, kyphosis, do you have any? Uh... No. So Pence, you know, had, you know, fairly unusual mannerisms, right, up, up at the, at bat, right? Kyphosis. Well, I should know this. I knew he had a good long stretch with the Giants, who involved somewhat as well. What, what would he do at bat? Say it again? When you said he had mannerisms at bat. When, what you know, would... he, he was just, you know. He was just a lot of kind of herky jerky motions, a lot of lot of you know almost tick like, but uh-huh. yeah. Wondering if this has something to do with that. I'm trying to think. He also had I don't know what kyphosis, a genetic disorder. He also had you know consistent issues with one part of his body, and I'm thinking maybe it was. I mean, he had some sort of persistent injuries. I think maybe to his feet. I'm, I'm, I may just be be talking out of my. <laughs> my my rear right now but i don't recognize what kyphosis means k-y-p-h i'm just trying to i don't know what that you know osis is right inflammation kyph or itis is inflammation yeah i don't i'm i'm yeah i think we're supposed to get this from the baseball angle that we're supposed to know something about underpants uh, maybe it's his knees his yeah what did he do? Remember, usually, yeah, Hunter Pence. They used to hold the signs. Hunter Pence, you know, does X or does Y. There was sort of a, a, a uh, kind of a fam love, you know, for him because because I'm, I may be conflating things again here. But again, I don't have a good good guess on this. You want to say? I mean, I can't think of anything about his ears or eyes or or face or maybe he had knee problems. You want to say knees or feet? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Let's say it's his feet. Pretty simple guess, but not correct. Pass to Darren. All right. So I, I don't totally know this from the baseball angle, but I know 
kyphosis is usually associated with having a hunchback. Like that's a little trivia thing that they'll usually throw at you is like, if they say kyphosis about a literary character, you're supposed to know that that's Quasimodo. And I mean, Hunter, you, Doug, you were absolutely right about his mannerisms and like his overall, he's just a, a very twitchy, awkward looking player, both right. in the field and at the plate. And I think part of it, he, he did have kind of a hunch. So I'm going to say back, upper back. Do you want to try, as Victoria Corden Mitchell would say, have another go? Can you be any more specific? Neck. So, I mean, if someone is a hunchback, like what part of their body is the reason? The spine? That? Spine. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take okay. that. Yeah. 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 It's curvature. I mean, he also, I, I've seen some some threads asking about his throwing motion as well, which is unusual because of the un- abnormal curvature of the spine. Mm. Yeah. I didn't actually know, know that about the diagnosis. That makes a lot of sense yeah. having watched him play for a long time. All right, so I'll give Darren credit for that. And now Doug and Darren to try and steal from Randall. Douglas Morrow won an Oscar in the now defunct category of Best Motion Picture Story for The Stratton Story, a 1949 biopic of White Sox pitcher Monty Stratton. What longtime Yankees catcher, a 1954 inductee into the Hall of Fame, played himself in both The Pride of the Yankees and The Stratton Story? So it's me and, uh, and me. Uh, D- Darren, so- yeah. So basically name a longtime Yankees catcher who is not Yogi Berra. <laughs> First name that comes to mind here is Bill Dickey. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, but I... And it would make sense that he would did the pride of the Yankees that, that I think he overlapped with Gehrig as well at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's the only Yankee, other Yankee catcher Hall of Famer I can think of from that time frame. So I'm good with that. All right, let's lock that in. Uh, Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, good job, Doug's first score of the round and nudges Darren into the lead. But let's see if, see if Randall can take it back with this bonus. It's time for a non-baseball question, I think. (laughs) (laughs) The Stratton story marked the first of three times James Stewart, who played Monty Stratton, was paired with what actress who also portrayed his wife in The Glenn Miller Story and Strategic Air Command? Oh, dear. Don't know this. I have been asked by Yogesh about James Stewart pairing with other actresses before. <laughs> the answer to that question was before this era, because I think I said I confused O'Sullivan with Sullivan at some point. Right. And yeah. uh, that's not the answer here. So Miller story, strategic here. I don't know what these are. Uh, I'll, I'll add in one more hint. Toward the end of her life, she became known for breaking a certain stigma. Stigma. Breaking a certain stigma for actresses let's let, let randall have a, have a go at it first oh, i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry that's all right i i, I could use your help though because i didn't <laughs> help me that much stigma would there be i guess someone that lived a while i don't know who this is um stigma oh this is going to be another interesting answer i'm sure i'm getting nowhere with the stigma part of it i'll just say um i don't know 1949 i don't know Lot of all right anyone else know it this is uh, June Allison. Oh. Who late in life was a, uh, a spokesperson for uh, Depends. Or yeah, there you go. Oh, yes. I do remember those now. Yep. Yeah. All right. So Darren remains in the lead as we head into the next question for Randall and Darren to try and steal from Doug. What was the first retro classic ballpark in the world designed by HOK Sport, now called Populous? It finally fulfilled Robert E. Rich Jr.'s dream of hosting a Major League Baseball franchise in his city, though perhaps not the way he wanted it to, when it became the Toronto Blue Jays' home field during the 2020 and 2021 seasons. Hmm. Rich. 
All right. Also, I mean, this is, it's got to be Buffalo. That was my, yeah. That is where they played during the early days of the pandemic? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know, and I know the Buffalo Bills used to play in Rich Stadium. Oh. So, yeah. but I, I doubt this isn't that because that was a football stadium. And this, I think this is like a, a minor league stadium mm-hmm. for the Bisons. Also, I'd be very, unlike, very unlikely to put Rich in the question if it were Rich Stadium. Right. So we need the name of the ballpark. Yeah. So, I mean, the best I would probably have is like Bison's Park yeah. or something. But, I, you know, usually I feel like these days minor league stadiums have some terrible sponsorship name like Fifth Third Stadium or, you know, some of those ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'll be generous. I think yeah. it looks like it's had six different names at various times. I'll accept any of them. <laughs> <laughs> the Bisons are uh, affiliated with what team? I am not sure. I think it might just be Toronto, actually. Oh, okay. Because nowadays, most of the teams have their AAA affiliates or close, so they can yeah. shuttle people back and yeah. forth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bisons. Yeah. Do you want to just say Bisons Park? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right. We're going to say Bisons Park. All right. I don't believe that was one of the six names it's had. So pass to Doug. Yeah, I'm right where you all are on this. Just trying to remember the name of, of that stadium in in Buffalo. If, if memory serves me right, they also use the old Rich Stadium in the stadium in the natural back way back when. I'm not sure whether that's right or not, but it's it's not that. I remember it's not the name of the the Bills Stadium. I can't remember either Highmark or something like that. I'm going to call this Buffalo Wild Wing Stadium because, <laughs> because, because, um, because. In Why that, not? Well, if it's not yeah. that, it should be. Oh, it's actually <laughs> Buffalo Wild Wings and Weck. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I, I'm just not coming up with it. Uh, so uh, oh, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. All right. So it was initiated as Pilot Field, which was actually named after a company, uh, Freight company i think mm-hmm. downtown ballpark north america park duntire park coca-cola field and its current name name for the solens meatpacking company solen field oh. but it yeah, is so the bison stadium right it is yeah okay s-o-l-l-e-n s-a-h-l-e-n oh solen all right thank you all right and now to finish out this penultimate round we will have doug and randall try and steal from darren Whose 1981 Sports Illustrated article, He Does It by the Numbers, introduced the world to Bill James and Sabermetrics. Between 2011 and 2017, this journalist smithed a series of Learned League mini-leagues themed around various decades. He's also participated in over 1,600 1DSs, including my 1DS on Pretty Little Liars, where his one correct answer earned him a 17th percentile finish. Uh, You you knew there'd be a Pretty Little Liars reference somewhere, right? It's a baseball episode. How could there not be? Who's the person? There's a connection between like rotisserie baseball and yeah and quizzing and and who's who's that connection? Yeah, I think because in fact I in um in one of my pun one DSs I alluded to one of the origins of rotisserie baseball. Who's the New York writer Daniel Okrent? Oh yes, that's and awesome. and his team was the Okrent Finokies if I remember correctly. So, and I think he did the decades one, but you know, I, I didn't, I joined Learn League in 2016. So I may not have seen all of these, but Okrent would be my, would, would be my guess here. Yeah. That, that feels good to me. All right. Yeah. He also played by uh, Audrey Hepburn and more pertinently Atlanta Braves 1DSs. He got nine out of 12 in both of those, I think. Yeah. 
because of because of me, he had to uh, answer questions about Pretty Little Liars, <laughs> and I think that may be one of my one of the, my premier achievements in life. <laughs> okay, so um, when I come back, I'll give a scoring update, and we'll do the final round. Sounds good. And sessions were closing, so I got myself a beer. <laughs> All right, everyone ready? Okay, so the score at this point, I'll I'll go back and recheck everything to make sure it's right. But what I have now is Randall. Narrowly in the lead at 23.1, Darren right behind him at 20.3, and Doug not too far back at 16.0. So now this is the super hard round. The point values go up, six points for a steal, five for a specialist question, three for a bonus. And we will begin with Doug and Darren to try to steal from Randall. Which former Supreme Court justice who served as Secretary of Labor in the Kennedy administration and gave up his associate justice seat in 1965 to become ambassador to the UN returned to the Supreme Court in 1972 as attorney for Kurt Flood in Flood v. Kuhn, the case challenging the legality of the reserve clause? Got anything here? No. It feels, again, something I should know, but... I mean, the only, I mean, maybe it's a, a weird sports connection, but the only name that's coming to me, and I don't know whether this is correct or not, was, I think he's Supreme Court Justice, for sure, Byron uh, White. Wizard White. Wizard White. Yeah. So did he have, did he go back and forth like that? Was he amb- ambassador to the UN in 1965? That means he would have been appointed by Johnson. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I know, basically the things I know about Wizard White is that he was a football player and uh, Supreme Court Justice, and that's the extent of it. I couldn't even give you dates or... Right. I mean, the era is right, but again, I I don't mean, it's, know. it's a name of somebody that was a <laughs> Supreme Court Justice, and yeah, it was sports-related. Right. I don't think we know this by the, the lawyer, so not Warren, not... Brandeis. Yeah, I mean the famous the famous advocate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Go ahead. I mean like Mar- well, like Marvin Miller was obviously never a Supreme Court justice. So. Right, right. He was right the MLB attorney, player, player attorney. Do you want to just want to just throw a wizard out there and try to try to throw the whiz the fastball by him? Right. Yeah. The speed I'm, the I'm, speedball, as Bruce Springsteen would say, which nobody else says except Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I'm good with right. that. All right, we're gonna try Byron Wizard White. Yeah, good guess, although I think his tenure as a justice lasted into my lifetime. So I think Uh into the the 80s, maybe even the 90s. He might have even lasted into the 90s. Yeah, I see your logic, but not correct. Randall? I don't know what this is. It's surprising to me that a Supreme Court justice would give up their position to become ambassador to the UN. It feels like not something someone would do today, I guess. But I have no idea who this is. I'm just going to say Douglas because I feel like there have been a couple of justices with that name. So yeah, I think he did. I mean, I think I mean you are right. That is kind of something that jumps out at me as unusual. That very very short tenure because he must have could only really have been around three or so years between Kennedy administration and uh, 65. And I think he probably did serve alongside William O. Douglas. His name was Arthur Goldberg. Yeah. Yeah. Not when I'm kicking myself afterwards about <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't going to get there. Second Goldberg's question too, right? <laughs> that occurred to me as I as you were talking. I was like, should I should I remind them that it's a name that's come up before? Or would that? Mis- I mean, that's why I ruled it out, frankly. <laughs> Surely, yes. Yeah, the reserve clause was actually eliminated by the Sites decision because the Supreme Court actually ruled against flood in Flood v. Coon, but it basically kind of turned the tide. Right. Randall and Darren now to try and steal from Doug on May twelfth, nineteen ninety eight. Mark Grace hit the first home run ever to land 
where? Hmm. I've got a pretty good idea on this one. Okay. I think this is in the pool at Chase Field or whatever it was called at that point. Because he was playing for the Diamondbacks then, I'm pretty huh. sure. And they have that stupid pool. And that's about when that stadium opened. Oh, okay. 98. Yeah, that seems plausible to me. But when was the, uh, when did the Giants go to the other stadium with the... 99. 99. Okay, so this is not the McCovey Gold thing, though. I don't think so. Okay. Okay, cool. Let's go with what you said. Yeah, the pool at Chase Field. Yeah, so your, your subsidiary fact is slightly in error. He yeah, hadn't yet joined. Sure. He was still with the Cubs. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean, your, your, your answer is right. Yes, absolutely. And I yeah, think that... they moved into, Giants moved into what was what was originally called, now it's AT&T. Pac Bell was originally, I think it was in 2000 was their first season there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I was living, I was, I was living in yeah. living in the Bay Area in 99, 2000 and went to some, a lot of games there that, that inaugural season. Yeah, I think 98 probably would have been around the time Chase Field opened, right? That was his first year. Yeah. yeah. All right. Doug and Randall, they're trying to steal from Darren. Across four Major League Baseball seasons from 2010 to 2013, Scott Cousins appeared in a mere 135 games, batting 179 with just two home runs and nine RBI. Yet he left his mark on the game by directly inspiring the creation of a new official MLB rule, Rule 7.13. What kind of situations does Rule 7.13 govern? Hmm. What kind of situations? Um... I've never heard of this guy, have you? No. Well, you know, the name is vaguely familiar, but I don't know. I mean, obviously he was not a, a stirring major leaguer. When did when did MLB start limiting visits to the mound? Was that he left his mark by directly inspiring the cre- directly inspiring the creation of a new official MLB rule. So it could be what kind of situations so so mound visits I mean, these statistics sound like catcher to me. They do. (laughs) To me as well. So that's plausible, mound visits. You're requesting new baseballs. I have a loss. Let's see what, so something, something, a relatively new rule. So sometime since 2013, I'm trying to think. It seems like the number of mound visits were relatively recently. I mean, a decade, this is a decade ago. Mm-hmm. limited right because we'd get you know four or five six six in an inning sometimes yeah that feels pretty reasonable to me should we give it a whirl yeah what's uh, what's your answer mound visits good guess but not correct Darren. so i mean this is not known as the scott cousins rule it's usually known as the buster posey rule because scott cousins collided with buster posey at the plate in uh, 2011 uh... and ended his season and there, there were thoughts it might end his career, but then he obviously came back and had a great season in 2012. So this would be just plays at the plate, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, like potential collisions at home plate. Yeah, blocking yeah. the plate and all that, yeah. Yeah, sure. Good answer. All right, yeah. Doug and Darren now. Try and steal from Randall. Again, this is the super hard round. Also, maybe the round where we get a bit tangential from baseball. <laughs> Many people think that the older Dottie in A League of Their Own is played by Gina Davis in aging makeup, but in fact she was depicted by an actress with a career dating back to the 50s, who in her younger days bore a striking resemblance to Davis. 
That actress, via her father, who represented Oklahoma in the U.S. House of Representatives from 1927 to 1943, is a distant relative of which key figure in the Second Great Awakening, who was defeated by Abraham Lincoln in an 1846 congressional race that allowed Lincoln to serve a term in the U.S. House of Representatives. That sole two-year term, incidentally, was Lincoln's only experience in federal government until he was elected president over a decade later. That's not really pointing you toward the answer, but it's an interesting fact. All, All right. right. So is any <laughs> of this helping us? <laughs> I've read There's it again. There's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> I've read it again and I'm not, I'm not sure. So the Lincoln key figure in the Second Great Awakening defeated by Lincoln in 1846 congressional race. So I assume that this was in Illinois, but right, the Lincoln-Douglas debates were later, right? They were right. when they were uh, when he was running for president, right? No, but I just yeah. No, but, I'm sorry. No, but it, but they were. I think, but you're they right. Were later, they, sorry. Later. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up in Springfield, big... in Springfield, Illinois, so I like had this all drilled into me as a child. Yeah, so yeah. I, I had to say that this is yeah. a baseball quiz, anyhow. So, uh, <laughs> um, awakening and the second key figure in the Second Great Awakening, Oklahoma, twenty-seven to forty-three. Yeah, none of this so is we're actually really... being asked for the key figure in the Second Great Awakening, right? Not even being asked for the actress. I mean, the fact, I, that I, that I with... might, yeah. the fact that I withheld surname suggests that all three figures I'm, are mentioned have the same surname. Right. Right. Maybe it's Springfield. No, we've already said that. I really don't have a... a, a... So Second Great Awakening, I'm trying to think of... I think yeah, the only the only Great Awakening name I can really think of off the top of my head is Jonathan Edwards, but I think he was first Great Awakening and he was like a preacher. Mm-hmm. So I doubt he was running for Congress. You know, I will say I was certainly one of the people who thought that that was Gina Davis in in aging makeup at the end of that movie. Yeah, I mean, can we think of any actresses that fit that you know that look like Gina Davis? older no <laughs> um yeah i've been in the same room with gina davis this is a good that's a good that's a good fact but it doesn't help me here <laughs> you should have asked her about this you know hindsight and all that i i don't have a good guess do you want to you want to just throw out throw out something and, or pass it just pass it on to randy uh, i mean we should guess something so yeah. I'll, I'll just say it. we can just say edwards then all right all right can't blame you for taking a shot but not correct rand yeah, this really is the super hard round. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, none of this is helpful. I have no idea who this is. So I'm just going to say someone that Yogesh likes to ask about sometimes and say post. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, when you said Springfield, I was like, was there a Springfield? I'm pretty sure, uh, unlike the one on The Simpsons, the Springfield I grew up in was not named for someone named Springfield. Uh, <laughs> I think the usual usual founder, I think, is Elijah Isles, who my middle school. Uh, fifth, sixth grade school was named after. But yeah, this, I think the way in is second grade awakening. I think just as a kind of a general quizzing thing, there are multiple figures associated with the first great awakening, including Jonathan Edwards. The second one, the guy who started it, Peter Cartwright. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think the congressman was named, I think, Wilbur Cartwright and the actress professionally billed as Lynn Cartwright. Hmm. All right. Uh, Randall and Darren to try and steal from Doug. When the New York Mets defeated the Arizona Diamondbacks 10-1 on April 30th, 2002, who became the first Major League Baseball pitcher to record at least one victory against all 30 Major League teams? If they ever make a movie about him, perhaps he will be played by a different actor in each of those victories. All right. Early 2000. This is a Randall and Darren. I'm sorry. They got it. 
Huh. So, I mean, obviously we're looking for, I mean, the being played by a different actor has to be a hint. Yeah. What is like a huge that? hint. Yeah. So who's a character that's played by? I mean, Bob Dylan and um, I'm not there. Lots yeah. of different actors for him. Um, who else is played by a lot of different actors? I mean, there's been a lot of characters, you know, there have been a lot of characters played by multiple actors like James Bond and, sure. you know, but. Yeah, that feels like he's pointing us towards something that's more like within a, you know, like a single movie or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean, from the baseball angle, we've uh-huh. got, I mean, we have somebody that played in both leagues, obviously, and had to have played on multiple teams in each league because he would have had to beat his former teams at some point as well. Right. So, and was on the Mets in 2002. Right. Um, Man, this feels very gettable. Mets. Kenny Rogers, David Wells. No, these are single league people. I mean, old people who played for a long time. Bartolo Colon, that's too late. Yeah. Warriors, too late. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be somebody that's, I mean, so I know like the current poster boy for this would be like Edwin Jackson because he's played for like 20 teams or something at this point. But I'm wondering if it's going to be somebody like that who's not even, you know, that marquee of a player other than he just got around a lot. Yeah. I mean, are there any pitchers at all that we can think of that share a name with a character of some kind? Mm, Yeah. doesn't even have to be a starter. No, no. It could definitely be a reliever or somebody that, you know, went back and forth or... Have we sussed out anything about Doug's categories? Because I have not really been paying attention to that very much. Somebody's asking about the Mets a lot. I don't know if that's you, Darren, and that's Doug. It's definitely not me. So this maybe just be a Mets question. Yeah. That could be it. So who's yeah. very Metsy from this era? Bo- Bobby Jones. Mm-hmm. The two different Bobby Joneses. Right. Uh, I mean, 2002. It's like Al Whiter, Rick Reed. Getting anywhere with this. <laughs> oh man ah oh, i feel like both halves of these are things both halves of this that's things that we i can crack but yeah that's the only reason i'm dragging this out otherwise uh, i would just say like jones or something uh, but i feel like i should be able to get this from one or both of these angles and i mean it's going to be it'll be very satisfying to get it or very frustrating to not get it mm-hmm. especially when we hear the answer and slap our foreheads really hard yeah oh, Rondo Benitez. Oh, that's later. Yeah, and he was pretty exclusively like a closer. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like middle relief is more likely. Yeah, it would have to be like a mop-up guy or yeah. or a starter, obviously. You like to get the win in a 10-1 game. You kind of have to have started that game, right? True. I would think. I haven't actually looked at the box or anything. Yeah. Uh, all right. Does that help at all? I mean, you know, it's before like Pedro's pitching for them. Uh yeah, I, I, I'm at a loss here. I don't know. Yeah, I guess we could say like, well, I was going to say Bobby Jones, but that feels like not someone that had enough time. You want to say like Al Leiter? Maybe it's like Felix Leiter or something like that. That's really a stretch. Yeah, I mean, can just say Leiter. Right. Yeah, we're not going to get this, so let's just leave it at that. Yeah, rip off the band-aid. Yep. What are you locking in? Leiter. Yeah, I mean, next week I'm recording the James Bond episode, and I had to sneak a stealth James Bond question into this game. It's Outlighter. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought that was going to go over to Doug. 
Yeah, I had it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doug just held up a post-it with lighter circle on it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, oh, okay. That was unexpected, but yeah. Well done, right. guys. All right. So Doug and Randall now to try and steal from Darren. The son of a Tammany Hall operative who served with New York City's Commissioner of Public Markets, what franchise owner earned the enmity of a generation of Brooklynites when he transferred the Dodgers to Los Angeles? This is Doug and me, huh? I believe so. Um, Doug and Randall. I mean, isn't that Walter O'Malley? I think so. That feels um, like not a question that belongs in the super hard round, though. Are we missing something here? Right. The owner, he was not the, he was the owner, right? He wasn't the manager or GM. Was Ricky still the GM at that time? But yeah, he, Ricky was never the owner, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in, in suburban New Jersey, a child of, of New York baseball fans. And certainly though they weren't Dodger fans, that was not a name that was spoken in, in polite company much. I don't know what else this could be. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, oh, it's really hard. Then, then he's fooled us. But I mean, that O'Malley was the first, also the first name I came up with. So, shall we go with it? Yeah. All right. Let's try it. Yeah. I, I did have a thought when I was writing it. I was like, is this too easy? And then I was like, well, I mean, maybe I just know old baseball really well. And yeah, no, uh, yeah, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah don't overthink it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I hope this next one isn't also too easy. I wasn't really sure how much to include, but we'll find out. Okay, so yeah, going, this is going to be the last three. So everyone will have one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. And I think that one pushed Randall into the lead. Yeah, Randall and Darren have been trading back the lead, basically, back and forth. Okay, so... Um, just to warn you, my headphones are telling me that the battery's dying. So worst case, I can just go off headphones, I guess. All right, so obligatory 20th century poetry question in case Darganware <laughs> is listening. Uh <laughs> Donald Hall was the inaugural poetry editor of the Paris Review. Across his lengthy career, he received Oxford's Newdigate Prize, the Poetry Society of America's Frost Medal, two Guggenheim Fellowships, the National Medal of the Arts, in addition to three National Book Award nominations. He also served as New Hampshire's Poet Laureate for five years and was the National U.S. Poet Laureate from 2006 to 2007. As for prose works, he penned the Caldecott Medal-winning children's book Oxcart Man and co-authored the memoir of which baseball player? That memoir is particularly remembered for its revelations about an incident that occurred on June 12th, 1970. Okay. Let's see. June 12th, 1970. Memoir is particularly remembered for its... Uh, June 12th, 1970. So what happened? So could this be... So I'm not sure whether the date is right, but could this be the date that Tony Canigliaro was beamed, basically ending his career... He was like the golden boy for the Red Sox. I yeah. mean, about about this time, if the date is about right. I'm not sure exactly yeah, I, exactly when, but it's a it's about right. Yeah, and I mean the the New Hampshire Association kind of mm. works. I mean, the other one I was thinking of from this era is the Juan Marichal, Johnny Roseboro, the bat over the head uh, thing. Right, that seems to me to be a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that might have been late 60s. Now, the question is, even if this is the Tony Canigliaro thing, are we? is it just him or is it the pitcher that beamed him? And do we know who that is? That was Jack Hamilton who beamed him. You see, here, here are the things that I know about baseball. <laughs> but uh, was it Jack Fisher? No, it was Jack Hamilton. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, it sounds about right. It's also about when... No, I, I don't think that I was about to say something about Bob Gibson getting hurt, but I think that was just on a, um, was not as much of a, a moment in time in baseball. 
Yeah. Like this. Because this isn't, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think of any other possible. For its revelations about an incident. Yeah. I mean, incident uh, definitely leads you away from just something run of the yeah, mill. It's yeah. got to be. Revelations about an incident that happened on June 12, 1970. So it could be. I mean, that, yeah. Like it's way too early for something like Disco Demolition Night or, you know, yeah. like <laughs> it is indeed. Obviously not Pine Tar incident, and obviously not Bert Campanaris playing all nine positions in a game. But I don't, I don't think either of the pitchers, either Jack Hamilton or Jack Fisher, I think it was Jack Hamilton. I don't think yeah, they're not notable enough to, to, to have had a memoir, right? Right. I'm coming up with blanks. Anything, I'm, I'm sort of now, everything else is blocked from my mind, but that doesn't necessarily mean this is right or what we should answer. Yeah. Um, just trying to think 70s, early 70s. Baltimore was really good. Pittsburgh was their heyday. Oh, or is it? There's also was this about? I mean, Bert Campanaris again. There was there was an event where Bert Campanaris threw his charged the mound and threw his bat at a Tigers pitcher. I don't remember who that would would be. You want to try Tony C? Yeah, I mean, I think that's might be the Occam's razor here with a New yeah. Hampshire poet. I mean, I think this. I think going for a Red Sox would probably be the way I would go. Unless it's somebody, I mean, like, was Bill Lee there in 1970? It's early for him, right? Yeah, I think so. Oh, um, no. How about Doc Ellis's no-hitter? Oh, and a revelation would be that he was on acid. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's better. Yeah, let's do that. All right. So, you'd so like we're going to gonna... Doc Ellis, I think. And the book was called Doc Ellis in the Country of Baseball. Uh, nice. Wow. Last, last second poll there. Oh, really impressive. I was going to go a different way. Yeah, I thought that was just going to be another one. And then, yeah, you uh, you pulled it out. I guess the second time in three questions, you guys pulled it out right at the last minute. I think that should send Darren back into the lead with two questions remaining. Oh, exciting. All right, Randall and Darren now. So the gap will not change on this question because Randall and Darren are on the same side of it. A minority shareholder in the New York Giants until they, in her view, betrayed the city by decamping to the West Coast, who spearheaded the founding of the New York Mets and became the first woman to have majority ownership of a Major League Baseball franchise through a means other than inheritance. Okay, good. This isn't as obvious as O'Malley. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I mean, well, if you had asked me who the owner of the Giants was, I would have that. But yeah, this is not that. So... Yeah, I don't know who this is. Who is Shea Stadium named after? I mean, that's probably as good a guess as I have. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel like Doug's getting into this cold. Yeah. If if our Mets centric guess was correct, I mean, are there any other prominent New York women of that era that we can even the early sixties? Yeah. Somebody that had money from business of some sort. Yeah, I don't have any. You want to just stop wasting time and say Shay? Let's say Shay. <laughs> Kick it over. Yeah. All right. All right, Doug. Yeah, I think Shay, William Shay, I believe, was Borough, Queensboro president at the time. And I think that's why the name, the stadium had this name. But this woman, I don't think, is known for much of anything else. But I do, I, I think your, your sense was good there. I do, I do know this. I think her name was Joan Payson. Right. So when I said through a means other than inheritance, I mean, she didn't get the team through inheriting it. Right. Her money right. did, in fact, come from <laughs> yeah. inheritance. And in yeah. fact, I mean, her she was an art collector as well. Her art collection is you actually have to go to Maine to see it. But you can mm-hmm. certainly see lots of art at the museum named for her family in New York City because she was a member of the Whitney family. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Payson was her married name, though. So yeah, that's probably what she was more famous under. But yeah, Joan Whitney Payson. <laughs> All right. And now, so because this last question actually is going to decide who wins the game, not that it's like a super high stakes about winning and all that, but because of that, I will withhold a clue and maybe bump up the difficulty. But then again, who knows? I'm clearly not all, not all that great at judging difficulty of these things. Yeah. Doug and Randall to try and seal from Darren. Basically, you know, whoever gets it right will win the game between Randall and Darren. Okay. In 1997, while delivering a typically mean-spirited SNL weekend update joke about how a certain woman supposedly, quote, visited more than 200 times a museum dedicated to broadcast journalism where guests could pretend to be news anchors, Norm MacDonald inadvertently dropped an F-bomb and then quipped, my farewell performance. The year before, he had noted that this woman was rumored to be romantically linked to a certain man, and then added that she claimed that she doesn't have time for a boyfriend because she's too busy pretending not to be stupid. In truth, she married that man in 1997 and remains with him to this day. Identify the target of McDonald's misogynistic ire. All right, so the baseball connection is, I guess, the person that she married? I would, I would guess that makes some sense, where they could pretend to be news anchors. So, so obviously, it's sort of... <laughs> I don't uh, going mis misogynistically going after this individual's aspirations for a media career or something like that. And who who would that have been? Or it could be someone who was already in media, but mm. Norm McDonald thought she wasn't good at it. Yeah. So this is like, and this is too early, right? For I mean, Jeter just got there in '95, so all the rumors about Jeter and and his various possible. Yeah, yeah, girlfriends didn't, really didn't yeah. that speculation didn't start till later right it was going to be someone that got married in 97 and is still married to that person married today and that's too early for somebody like you know jay-z and and beyonce i don't know why why that would be but i can't think of what where that would happen well, what are the kind of baseball players you can think of that are married to celebrities nomar is the only person that comes uh, to mind that doesn't really fit with mia ham yeah nomar mia ham who else was in in the city at that at that point visited more than 200 times a museum dedicated to broadcast journalism well guests could pretend to be news anchors was it a former cast member of snl you know sort of pretending to be i mean i can't remember i mean it's too late for jane Curtin, too early for tina fey and and those folks uh, the dark days of, of snl boy i'm i'm stumped here randall year before so 1996 so there's a strategy that people on this podcast often use when <laughs> they're stumped about something you might think about employing here. Oh, well, that maybe it's uh, Smith or Johnson or something like that. I mean, maybe it's Victoria Jackson, mm. who was on the show, I feel like, earlier than the 90s, but maybe. I don't know who she married. She's like some ultra right-wing person now, I think. <laughs> sure, just pull a, pull, a, pull a name. Smith, Johnson, Jackson, 96 no idea who she could have married so, so that's not the strategy i was thinking of <laughs> oh what other strategy do people take when they don't know anything the, the jimmy they... lee strategy <laughs> pass <laughs> or just not talking as much out loud in any case i don't know what jogish is telling us to do he's telling us to do something and i don't know what it is uh, darren knows this i can tell she married that man to this day. Yeah, I just, um, yeah, I'm stumped by this. Yeah. Oh. So, so since you have much more of your pride tied up in this, because you could possibly win <laughs> if you want to want to say Jackson, uh, Miss Jackson, if if 
Yeah, I, I, feel like, I feel like we were being led away from that. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> telling us that that wasn't the strategy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know who this is. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we could say that. Sure. It's not Mia Hamm. That doesn't make any sense. But I can't think of anybody else who married, who's famous, who married a, a ball player. So, all right. We can just say Jackson, I guess. Okay. You're locking in Jackson? Sure. By default, let's let's say that you locked in Jackson. <laughs> All right, Darren. Uh, I, go ahead, Darren. <laughs> yeah, I have no. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I have nothing on this other than trying to even. I was trying to look up at the chat and remember what <laughs> which category of mine this would even fit into at this point. That that was the strategy I was trying to tell Randall and Doug. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Got it. It still is not helping me. I mean, I'm guessing this is a tangentially sabermetrics related question, but man, the, I mean, it's not going to be like, yeah. The only thing I can think of is that, yeah, that, that doesn't even make sense. The only thing that's even tangentially related that I can think of that might work is like Connie Chung has been married to Maury Povich for a long time. And Maury Povich's dad, Shirley Povich, was a, a baseball writer who I think was kind of sabermetrically oriented, but that's a real stretch to get here. But it's the only thing I think that kind of fits with a news anchor female who's been married with somebody notable for a long time. So I'm going to say Connie Chung. Mm. I didn't know that about Maury Povich's father, actually. That's interesting. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I think if you think a little bit harder, you might. You can think of a, a figure associated with sabermetrics who is married to a, a a journalist who was not taken seriously, who worked for an or a, a channel that was perhaps not associated with hard-hitting news. I mean, if most people, again, not baseball fans, if you asked them, how did you learn about you know sabermetrics or whatever, what would be the vector that they, they learned about it from? Oh, no. Bill James. That's wrong. No, I was thinking like, you know. Elias. You're thinking what? What was that, Randall? Oh, I was just thinking like, you know, Mike Shore is involved with like, he's very into sabermetrics and he's married to Regis Philbin's daughter, but that's not this. Is there another another Michael that's associated with popularizing sabermetrics? Michael Lewis? Who's he married to? Moneyball. Who's he married to? Tabitha Soren. Tabitha Soren. Oh, wow. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. If I had this question to do over again, I would make sure to reference Tabitha Soren's second career as a fine art photographer. In particular relevant to the subject of this episode, her exhibition Fantasy Life followed 21 players drafted by the Oakland A's in 2002 for 13 years until 2015. All right, so no credit for anyone on that, but you you made it. uh, You got there eventually. Uh, yeah, a very close game. Darren ends up in first place with 43.3, followed by Randall at 41.1. So just a one-question margin there. And Doug, not too far behind at 33.0. Another so. way I will never measure up to Victoria Gross. <laughs> <laughs> you had your chance to be a two-time loser like her, but... Uh, I know. I'll uh, have to come back on. <laughs> All right. So yeah, we'll finish. Uh, everyone, basically, you know, you can get a chance to say anything you want about the game, about the world at large, about any combination of listings at any proportion, about anything you want to plug, your work, someone else's work, anything that's on your mind, as long as it's not offensive or too long, it'll be kept in. And we'll get the third place finisher to the last word. So we'll start with Darren. 
Uh, sure. Yeah, I just want to thank you, Gesh, for creating this platform to, you know, it's definitely unique among trivia podcasts, and it's really enjoyable to both listen to and be a part of. So thanks for that. Thanks for writing such great questions, as always, that are, you know, a combination of torture and also <laughs> making you learn new things and new connections to things that you never would have thought existed. So and then just want to thank my lovely wife, Kaylin, for, you know, giving me the time and space to do stuff like this. Cool. All right, Randall. Yeah, thank you, Gesh. This is um, so fun to have questions that seem like they're tailored for us individually and that you're trying to lead us down these paths and like you've led the, you've purposely put these clues there for us is like so joyful to me. I, I really, really appreciate that. And baseball is a sport that I played when I was a kid and really enjoyed and haven't been able to spend that much time with as an adult. And I'm kind of happy to be, you know, re-encountering some of those memories here. I'll plug some I got coming up, which probably by the time this airs will have already happened. So it'll be a retrospective plug. But I've got an opera that I've written about my dad that's going to be premiering online March 30th with a group called White Snake Projects. March 30th, April 1st and 3rd. And probably by the time this airs, it'll still be up and you can watch it and pretend that you're watching it live. Yeah, I think in retrospect, in place of that Dodgers question, I probably asked something about in the year of the boar and Jackie Robinson, which I think really traces a way in which baseball as kind of the American pastime provided kind of a path for, you know, immigrants and children of immigrants to sort of feel like they're part of American culture. You know, and that's a lot of the value that I, I place on it and perhaps also for you, Randall. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, obviously it's, you know, always nice to hear compliments about oneself. But yeah, I'm glad you're, uh, you appreciate what I put into this. All right, Doug. Yeah, let me echo what the other guys have said. This was a whole lot of fun. I've always enjoyed listening to this and just seeing how you you write questions and and lead people to and from from correct answers pretty flawlessly and, and in, in really interesting ways. And I'm not an artist, but both of my children are involved somehow in the humanities and in, in books and or theater. And I want to encourage everybody to not only support your local baseball teams, but your local theaters and composers and writers and, and all of those sorts of things. It's a really important part of our lives that we sometimes forget about. So well said. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank Very you good. all. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. That was super yeah. fun. Thank you. Yeah. Two of you as well. That was some good teamwork on. Yeah. 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 There are definitely some late pulls out uh, from, from, uh, from, from all, from all sides. I think that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm was, glad my, was... my one drug associated pitcher led you to a different drug associated pitcher. <laughs> yeah, right. That was fun to watch. I was going to go with Pete Rose on that one. Cause I was thinking maybe this is like my, you know, best players, not in the hall of fame thing. And oh, uh, yeah. uh, kind of Ray Fossey uh, um, plate collision. Mm. Uh, so I thought maybe this is all-star break. Maybe this is early for it, but I felt actually pretty good about that. And then you guys said Doc Allison. I was like, Oh no, that's it. That's yeah. yeah that's... Yeah, I think that's what's satisfying about some of these questions is like you, you're like totally lost. And then when you hit on the right thing, it just it all clicks together because of the way the questions are constructed. And you're like, oh, that's, that's 100% it. Yeah. Yeah. Although even when you got Al Leiter, none of you seemed to realize that you'd gotten it. No. <laughs> you're just like, oh, this is definitely wrong, but... I mean, I, I I almost talked my I would have almost talked myself out of that because Leiter was clearly the guy right then. But there were a bunch of I mean, I think Pedro pitched with the Mets right near the end of his career about that time. Brett Saberhagen, I think even David Cohn made a return. You know, all of them would be possible. You know, things. Like yeah, that I was just it. looking for something that was more literally like a character name that overlapped. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, technically, I did think, oh, technically, there were a couple times. So in the more recent ones, obviously, Jeffrey Wright plays him in, in all the movies. And then there were there was one time they brought back a previous actor. But for the most part, the character was played by a different actor in each appearance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I Very thought well of Blair as like more of an NL guy, but I guess he had the years when he was on the Yankees. Yeah, and didn't he, he come to the, the Mets from Toronto? I was going to say, because oh, yeah, I, yeah, I I watched the Blue Jays World Series victory. That was the age I was at. One of them was of course, more painful to watch than the other, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I remember Al Leiter from the, those series, yeah. Well, I'm going to go see how my Razorbacks are doing in, in their game against Kansas. Really uh, appreciate this. Yeah, uh, this was, this was a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, as much fun as it I'm, could have been. I'm always so. very nervous before these, and then like it's so enjoyable once it starts that I'm not nervous yeah. anymore. But yeah, well, it's kind of, I don't know. I, I'm like, I worry about looking dumb, but then once yeah. I'm actually playing and like we're all in the spirit of it, it's like just like enjoyable. Well, I think the format too of having, you know, being able to team up kind of yeah. helps you not feel totally terrible if you, you know, at least somebody else has missed it or somebody else can save your bacon or, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. All right, guys. Yeah, I don't want have to have a great Saturday. Too much. We'll great weekend. Too much, so, yeah. Thanks. Thank yeah. you again. Yes. Guys. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, everyone. Take yeah. care. Take care. Bye. This has been episode five of season three of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Routh. Thanks for listening.